I appear to have lost my memory. There is a strange set of rules telling me what to do. Written by Gray Buildings 789. There is a note on the nightstand when I wake up. I recognize the stationery. It's Benetton and B spoke with our family insignia in the upper left corner. The words fuzzy. I find my glasses, squinting to read my own writing printed below. Dear Natalie, You were in an accident not too long ago. As such, your memory has been compromised. I have printed a list of instructions, a sort of a playbook for the day of tasks that you must complete before the day's end. Please follow the instructions precisely. My heart sinks. I can't recollect any accident, but I notice a long scar running down my arm that I don't remember receiving. Strange. Step 1. Get dressed and go downstairs. Eat a hearty breakfast. You will need your energy. I do just that. Choosing a light blue summer dress. I'm already feeling hot and it's only the morning. Meaning today is going to be a scorcher. I feel sluggish. A bit tired. I must not have slept well. Regardless, I go downstairs to the kitchen and make myself a pot of tea and toast. On the fridge, I see photos of myself and my husband, Seymour. Where is Seymour? Did something happen to him? My eyes dart to the note. And, as if on cue, I read in the next paragraph. Seymour is fine. I breathe a sigh of relief. Step 2. Once you're done with breakfast, please make your way outside to the garden. There are red flowers planted along the periphery. Water them and make sure that they're healthy. If they are dead, replace them with ones growing in the greenhouse. Please note, if any children come along the fence, do not under any circumstances let them into the garden. If they get through, they can be impossible to get rid of and tend to try and get inside the drains. Curious indeed, inside the drains, Children, was I drunk when I wrote this? I water the plants. There is one looking a little worse for wear, which I replace. And then I hear voices coming over the side of the fence. Excuse me, miss. It sounds like it's coming from someone little. I can't find my mother. Can you help me? I looked down at the note again. They're tricky and gruesome things. Don't believe their lies. 
They are not your responsibility. Oh, I'm sorry, but I can't let you in the garden. I feel horrible saying this. Would you like me to call the police for you? I hear weeping that makes my heart ache. Please, miss. I'm so scared. I'm so very sorry. I yell over. All of a sudden, a bright, sunshine yellow ball comes over the fence, landing delicately on the grass in front of my feet. Can you please send me back my ball? Says the childlike voice again. I look down at the letter in my hand, hoping for some sort of guidance. There's just a sentence. If those little things throw a ball over, pop it with your gardening spade, and tell them to screw off. How did I become such a vile, cantankerous old hag? Still, all I have is this note for direction, and shakily I grab the ball, pushing it against my chest and popping it. It makes a loud smacking sound as I do, the air wheezing out like a dying animal. I'm so sorry, love, but I hate to say it, please, screw off. I hear Mark crying and decide that I've had enough of the garden for today. I go inside, drinking a glass of water, before looking at my next set of instructions. Step 3. More than likely, the basement door on the outside of the house will be open. Close and lock it. Make sure the hinges are tight. I circle around the house, till I find an exterior door that leads down to the basement. It's open, and blowing against the side of the house. I feel a sudden dread as I get closer. Something about the basement fills me with a sense of despair and sadness. There are strange markings on the inside of the door, almost like claw marks that have peeled away the red paint. The ground is turned and churned, mashed up like clumpy oatmeal. I close the door, making sure to lock it from the outside and check the hinges. Little bits of burgundy paint speckle the ground, and I wonder if we had had the house painted recently. My eyes wander down to the paper again, Step 4. Go inside, have lunch, relax. At around noon, a man will show up at your front door, even though the gate is locked. He will try to get you to hire him for his services. Do not accept. I am feeling a bit tired and grateful for the reprieve, making another cup of tea. I just want to sit on the couch and read a book. No more of these dreadful tasks. I don't even want to look at that paper again. But I have to once I hear a knock at the door. Good afternoon, says a jolly looking man. 
He has the type of smile that is infectious. Got a call for extermination services in the basement. May I come in? It would be nice to spray the basement. Get rid of any of the crawly things that are no doubt lurking there. But I remember the note. I'm so sorry, sir, but I won't be needing your services. Thank you, though. If it's about the price, I'll be willing to knock half off. I'm already out here. The man says, the smile unwavering. I glance again at the stationery. Natalie, do not let that man in for any reason. If he gets into the basement, they'll breed. And well, nobody needs that. Tell him to leave and close the door. Breed? I jolt upright. Sorry, sir, but good day. I close the door shut, locking it before retreating back inside. I'm feeling exhausted now, but I see there are more things on the list and begrudgingly read on. Step 5 I know it's early, but by now, you're more than likely wanting to go to bed soon. Make dinner, enough for two. Deliveries come on Wednesday and there should be food in the fridge. I've always enjoyed cooking, and I wonder who else I'm cooking dinner for. Checking the fridge, I find a nice piece of salmon, and I place it on a baking sheet with some herbs chopping up a side salad. When it's finished, I feel proud of my work, and take a step back, feeling my mouth begin to water. Step 6. Place one portion on a plate and leave it to the side. Eat the other portion. I do just that, enjoying the meal immensely. My eyes are beginning to droop, even though it's only 4pm, and I wonder how many more tasks I must accomplish. Step 7. Take a shower, get ready for bed. Your night clothes should be hung on the door of the bathroom. When I finish in the shower, I smear cold cream around my face and put on the red dressing gown. Letting out a yawn, I hope that the instructions tell me that I can finally go to sleep. Step 8 Natalie once you are in your dressing gown, go downstairs and take the second portion of dinner, placing it on a tray. Bring it down to the basement and place it in front of the cage. Do not open the cage. Do not open the cage. Do not open the cage. What the heck is going on here? I make my way downstairs taking the plate of food before descending down into the basement. I hear soft moans and gurgling. The porcelain plate trembles, making a ting-ting-ting sound against the tray, 
due to my hands shaking so violently. I turn on the light. In front of me is a sturdy iron cage with someone inside of it. The figure turns. Two bright eyes stare back at me. Seymour? I say, my voice in a whisper. My god, Seymour, what on earth are you doing down here? Natalie. Seymour places his weathered hands on the bars. Oh, thank goodness, he smiles, and the haggard lines in his face break like glass. Please open this confounded cage. I've been trapped in it all day. I place down the food, but then remember the note. Natalie, I know what you are seeing right now. Do not open the cage for any reason. Please, Natalie. Seymour says again. Please help me. Oh, screw it. I see a large latch bolted down at the cage's door. And with all my strength, I heave it open. The door to the cage swings open, making a long, drawn-out creak as it does. Give me a few minutes, dear, Seymour says, eyeing me curiously. I'll be upstairs in bed in a few minutes. Well, you shouldn't. Seymour interrupts me. Just a few minutes. I steadily walk up the stairs from the basement to the bedroom, laying down in bed. My eyes feel heavy, and I wonder how long I am going to have to wait for Seymour. I scan the note. Step 9. Place this paper on the nightstand and go to bed. Easy enough, I think, smiling. And then I hear it. A sharp, high-pitched squawking sound coming from outside. Guttural and awful at the same time. I make my way to the window. In the early evening light... I see Seymour emerging from the basement door, making his way into the garden. Something is different about him, though. He's hunched over, walking on all fours, his head bent, the jaw unhinged, revealing loathsome sharp teeth, deep circular eyes that look like never-ending holes now stare back at me. I gasp. My eyes catch something in the corner of the window. And I have to put on my glasses again. It's my Benetton stationery. Stupid cow. Well, if you're here, it means you must have let him out again. Don't worry. He'll come back before the morning. And his cage locks automatically. Just don't expect to get any sleep tonight. He'll be hungry, and the screams will keep you up. There's a sound just past the garden gate, outside, obscured from view. I hear a yell, and then a sickening crunch. 
I certainly hope it's not the children. The Giant at the Side of the Road Written by Darkly Gathers Some people are scared of spiders. I get that. They're frightening looking creatures. Some are afraid of snakes. I get that too. Some of the dark, some of heights, some of scarecrows, some of exams. But it's a little different for me. My entire life, I've been scared of the giant that watches from the sides of the highway. He's always been there. As long as I can remember. And he's always frightened me. He's colossal. A still and silent monolith. I've never seen him move. But whenever my mom drove me somewhere far away, he was watching. He still is. Whenever I have to take a long drive. Far in the distance beyond the road, shrouded in low-hanging clouds at the top of a hill, or on the side of a mountain, towering up towards the sky as he soundlessly watches the lights of the cars flicker by along the highway. I don't know why I think of it as a he. I guess it has kind of a male build. He has the rough shape of a human. A massive one. Whenever I see him, he always looks like he was formed from the materials of the ground on which he stands. Usually, this means he's a titan of brown and green. A rough and terrible extension of the wild grass hillside. A mountainous body of rock and dark earth. This was how he appeared in the earliest memory that I have of him. I saw his gigantic silhouette appear in the distance. A monstrous shadow in the wet, gray mist of that cold, dark evening. I remember wiping away the condensation on the car window to get a better look. Staring, my heart pounding. My body rush with that most basic of human instincts. An ancient and quietly powerful dread. The fear of the unknown. His eyes were a glowing, a soft green. Like lamps through the enshrouding fog. Looking back at me from afar. No one else can see him. I learned this pretty quickly. For my mother, my constant insistences and compulsive, anxious questioning went from creative and charming to rude, frustrating, and disturbing with significant speed. So I dropped it. No one else brings him up. No one mentions him. No one else stares out their window, cold and terrified as his form passes by in the wilderness beyond the road. I never know exactly when or where he's going to appear, but he always does. Whenever a trip warrants any significant period of time on a highway, he'll be there, watching. I've never left the country. I'm only 21, to be fair, but when I was younger, my mom used to drive the two of us down south to visit relatives. It was a long drive, and one that I always spent in a shivering sense of deep discomfort. The edge of panic a tide that ebbed and flowed against my constitution. I never knew when the giant was going to appear. The anticipation was always worse than his eventual appearance. But every time that I saw him, every time I see him, when I catch that first glimpse, the feeling is always the exact same.
The icy surge of adrenaline, the sharpening of my senses, and the dulling of my extraneous meanderings of my mind. There was only the present moment. Me and the giant. He's appeared to me in the desert before too, as a tower of orange-gold sandstone. Great clouds of dust swirling about his lower legs, shimmering almost imperceptibly as the sun burns high in the sky. He appeared as a grim goliath of frosted rock in the mountains. His rough, crude, barely human-like features weather-beaten and scarred by the swirl of a snowstorm and the biting hail. He never appears close to the road, so it's hard to tell for sure. But sometimes, his skin resembles the rough, dark bark of the surrounding trees, clustered perhaps, gathered around his knees. The deep forest green of the pine needles, carrying far up towards his chest. I saw him once, standing in the sea. He was a long way away at that time, but he looked worn, a coastal stack, standing stock still as always. A dark, rough stone body that simultaneously boasted a deep and incalculable strength. A power beyond rational comprehension. And yet somehow, at the same time, it seemed like it could collapse at any time and become lost to the frothing, training sea below. Just another unremarkable heap of underwater rock and sand. But his eyes are always the same. Soft green, glowing through the haze or the rain or the cloud looking back into mine. My mom doesn't drive me around much anymore. I don't live with her these days. My fiancé has been my driver for the last few years. I never learned to drive myself, you see. I'm too scared. The thought of driving alone down the road, the only person in the vehicle as the giant watches me pass from up on high, it's too much. The thought alone makes me sweat. I don't know what he wants, but I can't shake the knowing feeling that he wants me by myself. He's not a naturally good-tempered man, my fiancé. He gets angry easily. He didn't at first, but he does now. Nothing I say makes him happy. And I try so hard, but he provides. He looks after me. And I really should be more grateful. So many women have it worse. I haven't had a great deal of positive male role models growing up, if I'm being honest. My dad was a good man apparently, but I never met him. He was a construction worker, died on the job before I was born in an accident. My mother never really recovered. The way she is now, she's all I've ever known. But my aunt tells me that she used to smile so much more. She used to make jokes. She used to laugh. But I digress. I'm still with Colton, and that's my partner's name, because men tend to scare me, and my fiancé's mood swings are bearable if he can keep me safe from the others, safe from the unknown. He lashes out at me sometimes, he says things he doesn't mean, he hits me on occasion. It's never pre-planned though, you have to understand, it's never malicious, he just loses control, he sees red. It's a color he's been seeing in greater, more vibrant shades these last few months. I think the wedding is stressing him out. It stresses me out too. Not that I would ever let him know that, of course. That would only make things worse. We've been driving around a lot, 
scoping out potential venues, and they were all so far away. Every trip requires a long and troubling drive down some highway, a drive under the watchful eyes of the silent Colossus. Colton has always known that long drives make me nervous. He thinks it's funny. He laughs at me and makes fun. I've considered telling him the real reason, telling him about the giant, on more than one occasion, but I've always decided against it. After all, what good would it do? He would think that I was mocking him. He would get angry. So I stayed quiet and I endure the teasing. As long as he's here with me, as long as I'm not alone on the highway, then it's okay. Not alone with the giant. Recently, however, Colton hasn't found my anxiety particularly funny. Under the pressure of the impending wedding, he's become certain that my unsettled state, my set jaw, my tremblings, my clenching and unclenching fingers, my furtive glances out the window and my quiet, uncertain half-presence in conversation, is down to him, to our up-and-coming marriage and our relationship. And this makes him resentful. And the resentment always gives way, sooner rather than later, to bitter fury. You're useless, Rose. He barks mid-rant, shooting me a quick, fiery stare before returning his eyes to the road. I say nothing. You don't even want to get married at all, do you? Huh? You want to lock your freaking claws into me and then divorce me? You want to take me for half my worth, don't you? Hey, I'm talking to you. I don't, Colton. I reply quietly, watching the giant pan steadily by. He stood in the distance among a series of low, green hills. A flock of birds fly beyond his head, in an intricate, swooping formation. You can't get me, monster, beyond the road. I think to it. I don't know what you want, but you won't have me today. Not today. Not today. Yes, you do, he screams slamming his fist against the wheel. He reaches over and grabs a handful of my hair, yanking me close. I cry out in anguish. Everything I do, everything I freaking do for you, and for what? And what do you do for me? You barely listen. I try to talk with you, to be constructive, and you treat me like a freaking afterthought. I, I'm sorry, Colton, please. I whimper quietly, as earnestly as I can. I have to sound like I mean it or it'll just get worse. He swears under his breath, shaking his head, but mercifully, he releases me, and I thank him. I try to touch his shoulder, but he shrugs me off. I turn to look back out of the window. Trickles of condensation shake and run down the glass in little rivers. The giant watches. The wedding is next week, and Colton's only gotten worse. It's the stress. Some of us handle it better than others, I can understand that. I have to wear long sleeve shirts when I go out now. He's picked up a new habit. When I frustrate him, he grips my forearm as hard as he can and he twists. He usually will just leave a red mark that lasts for a few days. But sometimes he breaks the blood vessels under the skin and bruises for him, brown, yellow, purple. So I wear the long sleeves. And he's scarier now too. It used to be bearable. I used to actually want to marry him once. I still want to make him happy. That's what I've always wanted. 
but the thought of being trapped with him forever. What if he doesn't get better? What if he only gets worse? What if the stress just keeps coming? But I push these treasonous thoughts aside. They'll do me no good now. I'm in the car again, the passenger seat. Colton is driving. The world beyond the road is a picture of rain. Great loud sheets of it pouring through the haze. The low green mountains in the distance mere shadows and shapes amidst the thrall of the storm. The rain impedes our progress, and we aren't going as fast as Colton would like, and this has put him in an unfortunate mood. I am as always on edge. The topic of conversation has staggered clumsily onto my necklace. No, he replies flatly, twitching. Rage bristles below the surface. A vein in his neck throbs and then fades. It's an ugly looking thing if I'm being honest, Rose. I've always kind of hated it. It doesn't fit with the theme. The wedding's going to be in blue and white, and your necklace is green. I know, I know it doesn't fit the theme, I said apologetically, but my mother gave it to me and I know it's not the prettiest looking thing in the world, but I still think it's sort of nice. It would mean a lot to me if... Did you hear me, Rose? He shouts, shoving me away as thunder rolls dangerously across the far sky. Are you even listening? You never listen, I said. No. No, you're not wearing that hideous thing. My lip trembles. I hate that this is the way my body reacts, but it is what it is. I try to prevent my throat from closing up. A pitiful defense mechanism. It's my uh, mom would... Your mom is stupid and selfish, he mutters through clenched teeth, flashing his lights at the car in front of the rain. Please, Colton, don't. Don't, he repeats, turning to look at me, spit flying from his lips. Did you say don't? How dare you? You do not tell me what I can and cannot do, you ungrateful little. I try to assuage him to calm him down, but he only gets worse. He puts his foot down on the accelerator and swerves angrily around the car in front, honking the horn as he does so. And with a sharp push of the button on the door, the driver's window rolls down. The sound of the wind a sudden roar as rain lashes into the car. He grabs my necklace, and he tears it from my neck in a swift motion, hurling it out of the vehicle and into the downpour. No! I cry out, leaning across him, reaching out instinctively to try and grab it back, but I'm too late. He pushes me back and mutters something else under his breath. How could you? I say with voice raised. I did not plan on this accusation. I couldn't help it. I know that it was unwise that I shouldn't have, and I'll feel guilty about it later, but how could he? How could he do something so heartless to his own fiancé? Eddie strikes me again. He gives me a quick but heavy glance loaded with disdain and smacks me hard across the cheek and jaw with the full force of his hand. The pain comes in sharp, immediate heat that throbs across the side of my face. I turn away and against my desperate will start to sob, ever so softly. My tears like the rain against the window. Colton raises his voice further still, above the hammering of the storm against the windscreen. You're not listening, Rose, for God's sake. Look what you made me do. If you don't stop crying, then I'm going to have to. But he stops mid-sentence, 
His words evaporate from his tongue in a gasp, a noise that temporarily empties his lungs. A great streak of lightning cuts in jagged lines through the darkness of the sky ahead, and for a moment all is illuminated in brilliant white light. The cars ahead, the highway, the mountains beyond, and the giant. He stands directly in front, far away amongst the mountains, but he is taller still. A titan of rock, eyes keen and glowing through the swirling fog and the rolling clouds, yet ever silent in the howl of the rain. His sudden appearance makes me jump in horror. His eyes, once you see them, are obvious. I don't know how I miss them, but of course, I always see him eventually. Something curious happens next, though. Something that has never happened before. Something I will think about for the rest of my life. What the hell? Colton begins. Is that... And I turn to him. He is staring ahead, eyes wide. Wider than I've ever seen them before. His knuckles white on the wheel. His mouth agape. Are you seeing that? I follow his line of sight and look back to him and then back along his line of sight and back to him. I squeeze his arm with a sudden panic. Seeing what, Colton? Say it. What is it? What can you see? I'm unable to keep myself from shaking as a deep and powerful fear courses through me as the wind and the rain batter malevolently against the windows. That, that... Colton licks his dry and cracked lips. That giant, he whispers, and goosebumps ripple across my skin. I slam a hand to my mouth and look back to the Colossus, his glowing eyes to hate-filled searchlights in the darkness. This is it. This is the end. He's coming for me. And the giant moves. Lightning crackles again across the sky. A heavy tide of thunder rolls over the mountains and down the highway. I can feel it crash against the car, shaking it. Colton crying out as he struggles with the wheel. And the giant slowly, painstakingly lowers his head. The noise, a deep yet ethereal groan lost amidst the thunder. His eyes flash and he starts to lift his arm to reach out his hand. He's miles away. Miles and miles and miles. But the sense that the giant could lead down, all the way down from the sky and stride towards us, crushing the vehicle like a beetle in his grip, or worse, is very real. Palpable. It is like the very mountain itself has singled us out. Like it has directed the raging storm our way. And it is terrifying. Please, I scream. Please. Colton is incomprehensible. He is babbling nonsense, whimpering and shouting intermittently. And he cannot take his eyes off the giant ahead, nor his foot from the puddle. The giant groans and the rain cascades and the thunder ripples over the mountains. Colton, I cry out. Colton, look out. The car is coming up to the back of the jam. Traffic in the storm. And Colton screams, yanking the wheel to the left and then changing his mind, and hastily spinning it to the right. Lightning flashes for a third and final time, and the car careens off the road. The rain is a vortex around the vehicle. As it spins and the scene outside becomes a blur of gray and green. And I hear the sound of tearing metal and shattering glass. And the world goes black.
It's been five months since then. I remember waking up in the next morning in a hospital bed, panicked, frightened by the glare of the overhead lights, unsure of where I was or what was happening. Once I had calmed down, they told me that Colton had been killed in the crash, neck broken on impact. I didn't feel a thing when they shared the news. I wasn't really sure how to feel. He was dead, gone, just like that and I had gotten away with some nausea and a broken arm. In the span of the five months that followed, I did not see the giant again. Not once. Nowhere to be seen he had, it seemed, stopped appearing to me. And so, I decided to learn how to drive. I was pretty good as it happened. Unnatural. I knew that I had to be a natural at something, and it seemed that that something is driving... Who would have thought it? I passed my first time with flying colors. My mom found herself a half-decent job as of late, and she chipped in to help me buy me my first car. She was so proud. I'm driving it now. My first drive, actually, my first solo. It's nerve-wracking for sure, but I'm not going particularly fast. An easy one, and I know exactly where I'm headed. The evening sky tonight is purple. Wisps of thin, horizon orange cloud drift lazily behind the mountains. There are not many cars on the highway. I'm driving back to where we had the accident. And it isn't too long before I see him. The giant. He's not standing now. He is sitting, cross-legged, and still, watching from the mountainside ahead. I keep driving. I keep driving until I am as close to the mountain as I can get. I find a road that branches off, though it's more of a dirt track really. It clearly isn't maintained. I bring the car to a gentle stop and put it into park, stepping out the door and onto the wild grass beyond. And I walk. I walk over the fields and away from the highway. My legs tire quickly on the uphill incline, but I continue nonetheless. I climb the mountain with long, exhausting but steady steps, and it's not so bad. It's more of a long, high hill than a mountain, really. Still, high enough to be far, far above the highway, though. The cars below are a little but twinkling fireflies beneath a deep and indigo sky. I come to an eventual stop at the giant's outstretched hand. He's still sitting cross-legged, but his arm stretches down to the ground his hand open and palm upward facing. He's looking down at me now. I didn't notice any movement from his head, but our gazes meet as I look up at him. He's huge, so incredibly impossibly, almost incomprehensibly massive. And yet, in the light of the setting sun, I realize that I don't know how I could ever have found him scary. I touch a hand to one of his enormous fingers, he feels warm. The evening's light, before it fades, catches on something hung from a rock at his fingertip. A quick flash that draws my eye. And when I see it, I smile. It's my necklace. The one my mother gave me, glittering. I reach out and take it. And I crane my neck, looking back up into the giant's face. Thank you, I whisper. And slowly, ever so slowly... The giant closes his bright and shining eyes, and I take my leave.
and it's time to let them rest. I haven't seen the giant since the day that he had returned my necklace. I'm not sure if I ever will again, but I still feel like he's watching me, or watching over me, I guess, and I'm no longer afraid. Monster, please save me. Written by Postmortem33 I've been stuck in this cabin for a little over a week now. I came here to get away from the city, from the dullness and the monotony of my daily job, hoping I could write my first novel here. This was my dream ever since I was a kid. Unfortunately, my family wanted me to be a normal person with a normal job. There never was any room for dreams in my life. I just had to go to college and study business, and then get a boring 9-to-5 job at my dad's company. This cabin was bought by my parents for their summer vacations before I was born. They had acquired it for the beautiful lake that's placed behind it. To go there, you had to trek through the woods. I always thought that the trees arcing above you were meant to be nature's guardians, keeping the wildlife and all things beautiful protected under a shield of green. When I was a kid, my dad used to take me fishing there. I liked it a lot. Right until I got reeled in under the water. The fish had pulled so hard that I fell overboard. I didn't know how to swim. But luckily, my dad jumped in and pulled me back to the surface. Otherwise, I would have drowned and died. Even to this day, I never learned how to swim because, from that day on, the fear of going into deep waters just stuck with me. Another unsettling thing I realized that I loathed from that day on was the fact that we always stopped in the middle of the lake for fishing. We were surrounded by what seemed like a huge eye of water that made me think about monsters and horror living at the bottom. I remember always thinking, what if there was another world there? Another civilization that was able to live and breathe underwater. There's another thing that happened that day though. As I was going under, I felt something touch my feet. And I don't know if it was pushing me up to my dad so he could get me out of the murky waters, or dragging me down to the depths of a liquid, hellish nightmare. Adding to the terror that was already building up, I lost my calm, and as I felt water entering my mouth, flooding my lungs and silencing my screams, I began to panic. Before Dad had pulled me up, I turned around to see if it was just my imagination and then I completely forgot about it for the rest of my life. Until I came back here. Since I started writing, I always liked to do it in utter and complete silence, and this cabin had that to it. It provided me the comfort that I needed to get inside my own mind, and pull out the characters in these settings, the monsters, the villains, and the heroes of my stories. Maybe to write about my own experiences too. They say that the best stories come from the writer's personal fears. So that was exactly what I wanted to write about. 
It's somewhat unique to see a setting change so fast from day to night. The chirping of birds made the outside feel so alive during the day, and the colors of nature complemented that so very well. When the night came though, it felt all just suddenly died down, or maybe it all went into hiding, giving way, or rather, allowing for something else to come alive. All the colors faded away, swallowed whole by the darkness of the night, lost for hours in the solemn silence, and then everything came back to life the next morning. And the first couple of nights were just that, silence, nothing more and nothing less. I got ten pages done and I was very proud of myself. I thought it was the best decision I had made in regards to writing the new book. And then, things started getting strange. In the stillness of the night, I began hearing sloshing footsteps circling my house. Whenever I peeked outside of the window, there was nothing there. I was only hearing the rustling of leaves that seemed to cry out for help, only for their screams to never exit from that side of the woods. A coyote was howling somewhere in the distance, as if it wanted to let me know of some newly formed danger that was there with me, taking its time on how it would have been best to attack me. I heard the mud moving again, staccato footsteps thumping like a soggy drumline. It was an ocean sound, the kind of music that crawls out from deep, lost places, the song you would hear before drowning. Still nothing outside. Only blackness. I heard a knock on the front door. And then another. And another. Someone was trying to break inside my house. The knocking turned into violent bangings. And then it suddenly stopped. Silence again throughout the night. It didn't last long though. A pained shriek of agony pierced through the dark veil of the night and I felt my house moving from shock. With it, I too trembled in unspeakable horror. The trees started shaking, and the ground trembled again. This was making me mad. This was driving me insane, as I felt a lost, ancient curse finally found a new host to torment. I looked outside again, and then I saw something. Lengthy arms, finishing in dark chromium-like claws, were extending from beyond the tree line. They were rapidly advancing towards the cabin. Tens, if not possibly hundreds of them, clawing their way in through the mud. I was a sitting duck. When they reached the house, I asked myself, what was at the other end? What could the creatures that these clawed arms belonged to look like? They started intertwining, slithering and snaking their way over the roof and finally breaking the windows. I froze like a statue, kept in place by my fear and rendered unable to move. I heard a thump outside, and then the woods vibrated with a loud metallic hum that reverberated throughout the whole area. The arms retracted instantly from the cabin. They dragged the claws onto the floor, 
splinters and woods jumping in every direction. The sound was unbearable, almost like someone screamed into my ears. And then a drumming sound filled the air, followed by another loud metallic hum. I heard a large quantity of water splashing in the woods nearby. I instantly thought of a flood made by a gigantic rock, dropped by a dark god from the furthest point of the cosmos. The earth started shaking, and the leaves were rustling. Gigantic footsteps were cracking down on the trees, laying them flat on the ground. I heard shrieks and screams of anguish and agony. It seemed like the night was hurt and bleeding, almost dying. Something, some other creature was attacking the monstrosities that were just in my house. The wailing suddenly stopped for a few seconds, and then a roar filled the night again. The front door was violently smashed open, and another arm was heading toward me. At an impossible speed, and wrapped itself around me, like a snake suffocating its prey. It squeezed me so hard that I lost consciousness. I woke up to the sound of my body being dragged through the mud. Things were slithering next to me and I knew what they were. They were taking me to the lake, to drown me, to eat me. Their claws slowly began tearing my skin and parting the flesh on my arms. I felt the sharp pain coursing through my body as warm blood was getting lost in the mud. I managed to raise my head up from the ground and parallel to me there was the shape of a creature. Following alongside, its red eyes never seemed to lose sight of me. It was probably their leader. The thing that would have me for dinner in the kingdom below the lake. It would eat my flesh, drink my blood, and spit out my bones. I watched in horror, both at the lake and at the creature trekking through the trees. At that very moment, it occurred to me how lucky I was of escaping death by drowning when I was just a child. I knew for sure that the things tried to pull me to the depths right then. Now, I wasn't so sure that I would make it out alive. In fact, I was 100% sure my death would be slow and agonizingly painful. Another claw hit me in the face and momentarily blinked me. The red-eyed monster disappeared from sight, and I felt my body entering the cold waters of the lake. This was it. My demise. My end. I tried to break free, but to no avail. The arms were wrapped around me, their pointy claws pushing against my skin. I was under the waters, the light coming from the moon being the only thing that shone through this place where all sound dies. On the brink of unconsciousness, I felt things getting stuck and sucking on my skin. I tried to move but the arms were still wrapped around me. I felt the last breath of air escaping my lungs and getting lost in this infinite watery darkness in the form of bubbles. Right before dying, right before I got a chance to see if there is a light at the end of the tunnel, the arms let me go, 
I felt them going back to the depths, scared. Something pulled me up again from the water and onto the shore. It started resuscitating me. I began coughing, water jumping out from my lungs and splashing my face. My dad had saved me again. Except he was different this time. He had red eyes and he was just a shadow made of water. I tried speaking to him, but found out that I couldn't do it. I'm not your dad. I'm just a monster. I saved you then, and I've saved you now, child. You are safe now. Those things can't hurt you ever again, the creature said. I froze in fear upon realizing that it was the same creature that followed me when the arms had dragged me underneath the murky waters. He was in pain, his breathing hissed, and black blood, the texture of mud, dripped from his mouth and onto the ground below. He told me that he wouldn't hurt me, but he too needed help. His name was just that. Monster. He had been there in the lake since forever, since before the world even existed. He was protecting the woods and the lake itself from those things that attacked me. The monster told me he doesn't know what they are, or when they first appeared. Whenever they feel fresh blood near the lake, they want to kill it. They need to feed. The creatures were always strongest during the nighttime, he also added. That's why I probably escaped that day, with a little help from him too. And for that, I'll be grateful for the rest of my life. He said that he needed to rest somewhere where warm water exists. His wounds would have healed quickly. He was immortal after all. I suggested the bathtub back at my cabin and he agreed. I turned the water on and I saw kindness and solitude burning in his red eyes. He looked at me like he owed me one, when in fact, he was the one who had saved my life twice. Thank you so very much, child. You are a kind soul. I am forever in your debt. He said while letting out a grunt of satisfaction upon placing himself in the tub. No, monster. You saved my life twice and I am indebted to you for all of eternity and beyond. I replied. I turned around to leave and before doing so, he asked me to come close to him. He gave me an emerald talisman, a powerful ancient artifact that would keep me safe from the things that lurk below the murky waters. You will be fine, writer. I can already see it. Please, can you write about me? I feel like no one knows me, except you, of course, he said, a sigh of hurt escaping his mouth. I nodded and closed the door. I slept like a baby that night. It was like nothing ever happened. Maybe the amulet the monster gave me helped me heal faster. The next morning, I went up to the bathroom to see if he was still there. He was not. The water was filled with moss and algae that danced slowly in what looked like a miniature leg trapped inside a bathtub. I sighed and thanked him once again, wherever he was in that leg. Now people will know about you. Thousands of people will know about you, monster.
The apartment complex that I live in has scary rules that the tenants must follow. Written by Simply Ann Ryder. I had a nasty breakup with my girlfriend a while back, and although we lived in an apartment together, she stood as the owner of it, so I had no choice but to move out. Thankfully, a good friend of mine allowed me to stay at her place until I could find my own crib. Since I only wanted a rental apartment, my choices were pretty limited. There is a low supply and high demand for rental apartments in my city. After going through several that were too expensive for me, I found a vacant one in the outskirts of the city. It was a large three-room apartment on the fourth floor with a view over the woods and the rent was very low. I immediately applied and within a couple of hours, I got a reply that I could have it. I deeply regret moving here and now you may wonder why I haven't left. It's because the contract and the rules forbid me from leaving. The contract is for a year and honestly, I don't expect to survive until it expires. The same day as I moved in, I found a letter addressed to me from the company that rented it. I opened the letter and I took out the paper which said, Rules for living in the apartment complex. Rule number one. Regardless if you are home or away, your door must always be locked. You do not want to have unwanted guests in your apartment. Should you forget to lock the door after leaving, do not enter your apartment when you return. Call our support for instructions on how to proceed. Rule number two. It is not forbidden, but we do not recommend leaving the apartment between 11pm to 5am. Some entities like to roam the building during the night, and they do not take likely to intruders. This only implies if you want to leave your apartment and not if you return to it. Rule number three. If you leave the apartment between that time, Always carry a flashlight, a bag of salt, and holy water. The flashlight will repel the shadowy figures that you may see. Should you hear footsteps behind you, and no one is there, use the salt to create a salt ring, and do not break it until the footsteps have stopped. The holy water is for any people you may encounter. To make sure it's an actual person, spray it on them. Should they react to it, immediately run back to your apartment and stay there until 5am. If they do not react, it's safe to proceed. Rule number 4. The basement should never be visited under any circumstances between 11pm to 5am. If you should ignore this rule, then there is a high risk that you may never leave it. Rule number 5. If you are in the basement at any given time, with exception to rule number 4, and you hear growls behind you, Ignore them and calmly walk to the exit and do not run, because the thing that makes the sound will catch you if you do. Rule number six. On Mondays and Thursdays, your doorbell will ring at exactly 3 a.m. Approach the door as silently as you can and look through the people. There will be an old man with a fancy hat outside. Invite him in and politely ask him if he wants food. It doesn't matter what food you give him. After he has finished the food, he will thank you for your kindness and leave the apartment. Do not refuse him. 
because if you do, then you die. Rule number seven. Should objects in your apartment move between locations, pour the liquid we have provided you with on them and it'll stop. The liquid is located underneath the sink in the kitchen. No harm will be done to you if you fail to do this, but there is a risk that some objects will never be seen again. Rule number eight. Do not stare into the mirror for longer than five minutes at a time. Should you forget about this rule, your own reflection will remain and slowly make its way out of it. If this happens, smash the mirror before it can get out. Rule number nine. Every apartment has an intercom with the name of those who lives here and the number of their apartment. If you wish to visit any tenants, dial them and ask for their permission to visit. Should the doorbell ring and a tenant ask to come in, do not answer them and remain silent. It's not a tenant as they would never come visit you before calling first. Rule number 10. If you receive mail that is not addressed by the company emblem, do not touch it with your hands. Use a glove or something else to pick it up and immediately burn it. Should you pick it up, the mailman will visit you the next day and trust us, you do not want to meet him. Rule number 11. If the light in your apartment turns off between 9.15 and 9.20 p.m., find a place to hide until they have been turned on again. And do not worry, the creature won't find you as long as you are hiding. Rule number 12. Any visitor, meaning visitors outside tenants, must also follow the rules. If they break them, then both you and they will suffer the consequences. Rule number 13. And do not try and leave or move out until your contract expires. If you try and do this, then no matter where you go or who you visit, you will always return to your apartment. I read through the rules repeatedly. Luckily for me, I've read about rules such as this on Reddit and I know the seriousness of breaking them. However, it doesn't mean that they didn't scare the living hell out of me. To calm myself down, I made a cup of coffee and I went to watch TV. A few moments later, I heard the doorbell ring, which made me jump and spill my coffee, but somehow, I managed to stay quiet. Hello? A female voice said, but I didn't answer and I sat quietly on the sofa, shaking with fear. Is anyone home? The voice continued, not much louder and menacing, but I remained quiet. I know you're home. Let me in. It said now in a demonic voice, and it started to bang on the door with each bang, having enough force to knock the door down, but it held. This continued for ten minutes until it stopped. After a couple of more minutes, I got the courage to go to the door and look out the people, and nothing was there. I sighed and went back to the sofa. I looked at the clock and it said, 9.14 p.m. Remembering the rule, I went to my wardrobe as a precaution to have a chance to hide, since my encounter with Nine had shaken me to the core. As it turned to 9.15, the lights went out and I entered it and covered my mouth. I did not see what entered my apartment, but it was big based on the heavy footsteps it made. I could hear it sniffing around and it took every amount of my willpower to stay quiet. It then left and the lights were turned on again. I carefully exited the wardrobe 
and sighed as the creature had vanished. After that event, I could not go to sleep, so I decided to watch TV, but somehow fell asleep and woke up to the sound of my doorbell ringing. I looked at my phone and it said 3am. This made me wide awake and I approached the door with trembling steps and I looked through the peephole. My entire body froze as I saw the old man with the fancy hat. It took a few seconds to collect myself and I opened the door. I would have expected a ghastly looking figure, but he looked like a normal person. He appeared to be in his mid-70s with pale complexion, messy gray hair, dark colored eyes, and wore a nice black tuxedo with a purple tie. However, I knew this wasn't an ordinary person, because every cell on my body screamed danger. The old man looked me up and down and said in a friendly voice, May I come in? Of course, sir. I replied as friendly as I could. The man thanked me and entered the apartment. He took off his hat and put it on the shelf and went to the dinner table and sat down. As I closed the door and locked it, I said to the man, Can I offer you some food? And he replied, Yes, I would like that. I nervously went to the kitchen to put together a dish and while I did, the man stared at me without blinking. It sent shivers down my spine. I served him some chicken with rice and looked nervously at him as he ate my meal. After he was finished, he stood up and walked towards me and said, Thank you for the meal and your kindness. Before grabbing his hat and walking through the door, he literally passed right through the door. After he had left, I started hyperventilating and it took several minutes for me to calm down. I thought in the morning after work, I'll go shopping for protective material against the supernatural stuff. Not long after that, I fell asleep from sheer exhaustion, and I awoke to my alarm clock. The following couple of days, nothing paranormal happened to me, and I did not leave my apartment during the evening and night, but I bought several protective charms during my lunch break. However, the next day when I came home, I saw a letter lying on the doormat and I bent down to grab it. But before I could do so, I remembered rule number 10. If you receive mail that is not addressed by the company emblem, do not touch it with your hands. Use a glove or something else to pick it up and immediately burn it. Should you pick it up, the mailman will visit you the next day and trust us. You do not want to meet him. I put on a glove and I picked it up and I'm glad that I did, because it did not have the rental company's logo on it. I went and grabbed a lighter and set it on fire, and when I did, it released a horrifying scream that made me drop it, and I looked down in horror as blue flames consumed it. As I prepared my dinner, I couldn't find the frying pan in the kitchen locker. I remembered rule number seven. Should objects in your apartment move between locations, pour the liquid that we have provided you with on them and it'll stop. The liquid is located underneath the sink in the kitchen. No harm will be done to you if you fail to do this, but there is a risk that some objects will never be seen again. I took the bottle containing the liquid underneath the sink and I searched for it. I found it in the bedroom on the bed.
and I poured the liquid on it, but nothing happened to my surprise. After making dinner and browsing Reddit and YouTube, I decided to take a shower before heading to bed. As I stood in the shower, the lights went out, causing me to freeze before snapping out of it and immediately turn the shower off. Rule number 11. If the light in your apartment turns off between 9.15pm to 9.20pm, find a place to hide until they've been turned on again. Do not worry, the creature won't find you as long as you are hiding. I didn't dare to move and I thanked myself for remembering to put up the shower drape. I heard the creature walking around and sniffing the apartment. It eventually left, but I waited a couple more minutes before turning the shower on again, and luckily nothing happened to me. As I stepped out of the shower, I froze in fear and cursed at myself for my stupidity. As I remembered, I did not lock the door after entering and finding the letter. I rushed butt naked out of the bathroom to the door, and locked it and prayed that nothing had entered. I quickly went to put an amulet that I bought on, and as I did, it started to burn on my chest. Crap, I thought as my fight or flight mode had activated. I rushed to grab my waist bag, yes I have one, and put my phone, a flashlight, a bag of salt, and a bottle of holy water in it, and grabbed the keys as I left the apartment and made sure to lock it. I looked at the phone and it said 11pm. How is this possible, I thought. There is no way in hell that it has been nearly two hours since I had stepped out of the shower. Rule number three. If you leave the apartment between that time, always carry a flashlight, a bag of salt, and holy water. The flashlight will repel the shadowy figures you may see. Should you hear footsteps behind you and no one is there, use the salt to create a salt ring and do not break it until the footsteps have stopped. The holy water is for any people that you may encounter. To make sure they're real, spray it on them. Should they react to it, immediately run back to your apartment and stay there until 5am. If they do not react, it's safe to proceed. I walked through the hallway, yes, butt naked, and every hair on my body stood up and I felt uneasy. I saw three shadowy figures. But I used the flashlight on them, and as the rule had said, they vanished. When I entered the staircase, I heard footsteps behind me. I cursed and took the bag of salt, and I poured a ring around myself. I don't know how long I stood there, but I kept my eyes shut as I heard laughter and screaming around me. Apparently, they left that out from the rule. It eventually stopped, so I broke the ring and went on my way, and luckily, I saw no people. After leaving the apartment complex, I ran to the nearest 7-Eleven store, which was around 15 minutes away on foot. When I arrived at the 7-Eleven butt naked, the staff was in simple words surprised and horrified, but I had managed to convince them to let me in by saying that I was robbed. They gave me some clothes and allowed me to use the staff room as they called the police. After calming down, I decided to call the company's support and inform them what had happened. The conversation went like this. This is redacted support. What can I help you with? A female voice said. Hey, this is John from Apartment XX. I have a major problem that I need assistance. You broke rule one, didn't you? The woman said, slightly annoyed. 
John, we'll send a team to your apartment. It'll take us two days to fix things until then. You will be provided with a guest room at one of our other apartment complexes. That place has a list of rules that are slightly different from the ones that you have. Follow them and you'll be fine. Since this is a first-time offense, you will not receive any punishment. We'll send a car to pick you up. Wait, what about... Which she had already hung up on me. Well, isn't this great, I thought. When one of these staff had entered and told them, the cops are there. I told them what I had told the staff and I saw that they didn't believe me. But they just dismissed me as being a weirdo. After they had left, I thanked the 7-Eleven staff for helping me. And I went out where a black sedan had waited for me. An hour later, I arrived at a guest apartment. It was a two-room apartment with a kitchen and bathroom. On the bed were a box with my belongings and a letter. I went and picked up the letter which said, Rules for living in the guest room apartment. Rule 1. Do not leave the guest room under any circumstances until you receive a call from the company support. Rule 2. Do not look in the mirror in the bathroom at any point. It will take it as an invite. You will feel very tempted to look in it. So, our advice is to use a blindfold whenever you have to use the bathroom. Rule 3. Should you look in the mirror, then pray the entity takes pity on you. Rule 4. Always place a plate of food underneath the bed before going to sleep. Should you forget about this, then there is a risk that you will be the meal. The food is stored underneath the sink. Rule 5. If an old lady by the name of Anna knocks on your door at any point and asks you to help her, Ignore her and do not approach the door. She will disappear after five minutes. Should you not do so, then you will be dead in the morning. Rule number six. If you hear three taps on the window, ignore it as it wants your attention. If you hear two taps followed by three quick taps, find a place to hide until it is stopped. If you hear a crash while in hiding, it had managed to enter your apartment. Remain quiet, as it can only find you if you make a noise. After three minutes, it will disappear. Rule 7. If you hear laughter from the ceiling, do not look up. Ignore it and it will eventually stop. My heart sank after reading the rules. I went from one hellish place to an even more hellish place. I went through my stuff and thankfully, all my protective gear was there. I thought about calling the police but dreaded what could happen to them. I sighed and thought that I will just not break the rules. I will survive. After my little pep talk, I placed out various protective gear and after I was finished, I sat down on the couch to watch some TV before dozing off. I was jolted awake to both my amulets burning like the sun on my chest and to the sound of three taps on the window and luckily, I had put the drapes over them. My heart pounded so hard it felt like it would escape my body. But overcoming the burning pain of the amulet, I managed to remain quiet. It went on for ten minutes before I heard two taps, followed by three quick taps. Holy crap, I thought, and quickly but quietly made my way to the bedroom and I hid in the wardrobe. A few seconds later, the window broke, and I heard the most horrifying growl that nearly made me scream but I managed to cover my mouth. I stood there quietly as the creature roamed the apartment. It eventually entered the bedroom and I saw it through a crack in the door. 
It looked like a dog, except it had gray scales and limbs with claws that resembled talons, and its face was terrifying, burning red eyes with a wide mouth full of fangs. It searched through the bedroom before disappearing, and as it did, the amulet stopped burning and I exited the wardrobe. When I went back to the living room, the window was fixed and there was no sign that the creature had ever been there. I looked at my watch and it said 11.15pm. Great, only 28 more hours in this place. I went back to the couch and that was when I heard it. A demonic laughter coming from above me at the same time as a loud knock on the door. Hey, this is Anna, your neighbor. Could you help me with my groceries? The woman, or whatever the heck that thing was, said in a surprisingly warm tone. And the laughter became louder as the thing at the door said that and my amulet burned so much that I had to take it off. I looked down and saw that it had left a burn mark on my chest. I started to quietly sob and I silently muttered, why the heck did I have to endure all this stuff? I just wanted it to end. Five minutes later, the knocking and the laughter stopped. As if my body had moved on its own, I quickly went and picked up the food underneath the sink and put it on a plate and placed it underneath the bed. I then fell on top of the bed and the next I knew, I woke up to the sound of my phone ringing. This is John, I stammered. And this is Teresa from the support. We're all finished with your apartment and some of our workers will come and pick you up. I sighed in relief and laughed maniacally after she had hung up, as I realized I had slept for nearly 28 hours. Two hours later, I sat in the car on my way back to my apartment. I noticed that I had put my amulet in my pocket, and the moment that I touched the amulet, it burned my fingers. As it burned, my heart sank and I thought this was the end of the line for me. I lit the driver which appeared to be human, but the amulet and instinct said that he was not. If this is the end then I might as well put everything on the line, because what else do I have to lose? I took a few moments to gather up my courage and I asked, Are you from the company or are you something else? But got no response. I asked you a question, I said in an angrier tone. He then turned around and almost gave me a heart attack. He had pale skin with hollow eyes and no other facial features and he waved his hand, causing me to lose consciousness. Next thing I knew, I woke up in my apartment and felt more rested than I've ever been. I got up and went to make coffee to make sense of what had happened since the guest apartment. It was then that I found a letter at the door. Remembering the rule, I looked at it and the letter had the company logo on it. This is what it said. John, you've lasted longer than any other guest before, and you've proven yourself capable of surviving the horrors of this place. We are very impressed with you and want to offer you a position within our company. If you join us, John, we will nullify your contract and you will be free to live your life, but you will serve us until you die. Should you not accept our offer, then good luck at surviving until your contract with us expires. We want your answer as quickly as possible. Don't forget, the rules still apply. The owner. What's in the everlasting hell, I thought, and I dropped my coffee. I read the letter repeatedly and it sent chills down my spine every time that I read it. 
Thousands of thoughts rushed through my mind and I had to sit down. I can't do this anymore. And so I went and grabbed my cell phone and it said at 7pm. I called my friend who I stayed with before moving and told her that I'm in desperate need of help. She arrived 30 minutes later to my place and I nearly crushed her in a hug. After talking for a few minutes, I showed her the rules. If you've forgotten about them, well, here they are. She looked at me like I was going to burst out saying, It's a prank. But my serious expression told her that I was a dead serious. I then showed her the letter that I received and she looked at me questioning and said, Why did you give me an empty paper? This sent off alarm bells in my head as I could perfectly read what it said. Now, you may wonder why I did something like this, bringing in a visitor. Because I wanted to see if I was still sane or if I had completely lost it. You know what, John? This was a mistake, she replied. And she went to grab her coat when the doorbell rang. I sprinted towards her and said in a whisper, Do not answer it. Hello, may I come in? A male voice said, What's the matter with you? She replied silently, only for her body to stiffen as it said. You must let me in. Open the door. In that same demonic voice that made my blood freeze. I dragged her back to the couch and we sat in silence. As the demon or whatever it was banged and yelled for us to let it in. After it had stopped, she looked at me in fear and said, Is this for real? Have you been living like this all the time? I nodded in response and told her, that you must follow the rules. I then told her about everything that had happened to me since I had moved in, including the letter that only I could read. You gotta do something, John. Call the cops, the FBI, the freaking army, she said after I finished my story. You don't think I've thought about that, but what would I say? Hey, I live in a supernatural apartment where some deeply disturbing stuff goes on, and I have to follow a list of rules that sets off supernatural calamities. They would send me to a mental asylum. Before we could continue our conversation, the lights went out and my amulet began to burn again. Come on, I said, and I grabbed her and rushed into the bathroom and put the drape up around the bathtub. The creature arrived and I had to hold her mouth to prevent her from screaming. We stood dead silent as the creature sniffed around. I had counted how long it's been since the lights went out and it had been more than five minutes. Crap, I thought now terrified. This isn't supposed to happen. Just as I heard a deep growl coming from inside the bathroom. However, as the creature approached us, the lights went on and the movement stopped. But the amulet was still burning. It was then that I realized my mistake. I tore down the drape, grabbed her hand, and we made a run to the door. I had completely forgotten that I have a little mirror in the shower bar facing the direction that I stood in. As we made our way to the door, I looked back and saw a twisted version of myself smiling at us. I unlocked the door and managed to shut it as the twisted version of me ran into it. What on the earth was that? She asked terrified as we ran through the hallways. Something messed up, I replied. I heard a demonic laughter behind us as the evil me had managed to leave the apartment and it ran after us. We approached the stairwell, only to have the creature from before stand in front of it. I'm sorry, I said to her, for getting you involved. While I make a run for it, 
I will lead them away from you and give you the chance to get away. I'm not listening for a reply. I took off. My idea worked as they went off after me. As I ran from evil me and a large, dog-bear-like creature with gray fur, burning eyes and a twisted face, an idea came into my head. I ran to another staircase and then down to the basement with them following me. I had managed to open the door to the basement fully. The two creatures rushed into it and as they did, I pulled the door shut. I could hear a terrifying growl from within as they banged on the door trying to escape before going silent. I sat down at the door, not realizing how out of breath I was. After resting for a few minutes, I went back to my apartment and on my way there, the amulet did not burn. I sat down on the couch when my phone rang. With shaking hands, I looked at it, and the display said, unknown number. I answered it and heard a very deep and dark voice say, Well done, John. You've exceeded my expectations. That move by using the rules against themselves was very clever. The clock is ticking and I'm growing impatient. Will you take my offer or not? I'll take the offer. I replied to whatever the thing was on the phone, and immediately its tone changed from a deep and menacing to a calm and polite one. Excellent. We will send you a car within the hour and once you arrive, you will be given your first task. The thing replied and hung up. Immediately afterwards, I felt a sense of relief. It was like whatever evil that was present had disappeared. However, what I didn't know was that this feeling would be replaced with a much more terrifying one. An hour later, I heard a knock on the door. I walked to it carefully and opened it and a seven-foot-tall man with pale skin and no hair or facial features, except a pair of hollow eyes with a blue uniform that said, The Mailman stood there. I stared at the being in horror and took a few steps back. Despite not having a mouth, it spoke to me in a very dark voice and distorted tone. Your car is here. And gestured me to follow him. I complied because my fear of what would happen if I didn't outweighed my rational thinking. I grabbed my coat and followed the demonic mailman through the hallway with trembling steps and expected something would jump me. However, nothing happened and the next couple of hours were blurry because the moment I sat down in the car, I passed out. I woke up in a white room with no doors or windows and only a red office chair with a man sitting in it. You're awake. That's good. The man said and turned the chair around. I expected another horror figure to sit in it, but to my surprise, the being looked like an ordinary human. He appeared to be in his mid-sixties with gray hair, dark brown eyes, and a light complexion. He was tall, much taller than me and wore a red tuxedo. I felt dread filling my body when he flicked his hand, and he pulled the amulet from me. Oh, you won't be needing this anymore. And he crushed it between his hand. My name is Apollon, and I'm the owner of this company. As he raised his hand and brought me kneeling in front of him, I was terrified and I couldn't stop shaking. I remembered that I've heard that name sometime before, but I couldn't make the connection. He looked at me and laughed. No need to be afraid, John. I won't harm you unless you give me a reason to do so. And he gestured for me to stand up. You took my offer. Good. But to be sure that you are sincere with your decision and not trying to use it to save yourself, 
I will give you a task. If you fulfill it, then, I know you are a part of us. However, if you do not, then I will make you experience things that are beyond anything you've experienced at the apartment. Dang, I thought. He saw right through me. What is it that you want me to do? I asked, still terrified. He smiled at me and waved his hand, and I found myself back at the apartment with a note that said, I want you to give me three souls you're choosing that you have a personal tie to. As I read it, I heard a knock on the door and as I opened it, the demonic mailman entered. I felt tears running down my face and I wanted to scream. I shook with fear and anger as I not only realized what I had to do, but also who I dealt with. Abaddon, I said loudly, which caused the mailman to form a smile on his face using his fingers. It's been about a month since that I took the job offer and provided three souls to the demon, Abaddon. I won't disclose who I choose because I'm deeply ashamed of my actions, but I'm free from the rules. I'm allowed to spend my time how I see fit. However, when Abaddon reaches out to me, I must answer. I'm terrified all the time, and I've started drinking and I barely sleep. I've done some horrible things. I tried one time to refuse and that made me experience horror that made everything I had felt in the apartment look like a children's movie. I traded myself from something horrifying to something far more horrifying. The worst part is that, beneath the constant fear, I'm beginning to enjoy my new job. Now my job is to write and enforce supernatural rules for a rental company and my current target is a new apartment building where my ex-girlfriend and her new boyfriend will move into. I've come up with a really good set of rules. Probably some that you are really familiar with. It Came From The Woods Written by Klung J. Wan Have you felt a strong presence from the woods? A feeling like you're being watched? Well, the truth is, something is watching you from the trees and shadows. Monsters hide in the woods, preying on the innocent and striking quickly. They won't stop. They never will. This is my story and I hope it serves as a warning to all about the truth of the woods and how dangerous it truly is. How dangerous they are. Growing up, I never had a dad. My father left me and my mom when I was young, and I haven't seen him since. Sure, I get the occasional birthday or Christmas card with money, but besides that, he's almost a stranger to me. After my father left, my mother decided to leave the city life behind, and we moved when I was 10 to Wisconsin where we bought a small cabin out in the woods. At first, I hated living there. The woods always had terrified me as a kid. Every time I looked out the window towards the woods, I was got an unsettling feeling. Chills would run on my spine, and I would start to shake uncontrollably. I always felt something was watching me. The feeling never went away as I got older. I hated the walk to school that I had to make every day. 
The looming feeling of getting watched grew even stronger as I walked in the woods. I felt so vulnerable looking at the tall trees. The woods that I lived by had almost an endless stretch of tall trees in the forest. I felt something was watching me up on the trees. My mom, though, felt completely different about the woods. She loved it. She loved taking walks outside and just staring at the trees in the forest, taking all of nature in. She was an artist, so she loved to just sit outside and paint the trees. Many of the portraits in our cabin were of the trees and the forest. I asked her if she ever felt a presence when she was out there, like something watching her. Yeah, I feel a strong presence, but it's a comforting one, she said. I feel safe and protected. I never understood why she had such a comforting feeling from the woods while I felt a terrifying one. One that kept me wide awake almost every night. On one night when I was about to go to sleep, I saw something in the trees. It was far off into the distance, but I could barely make out the silhouette of a figure. It was big and bulky with long arms and from the angle it looked like it was staring right at me. I froze as I stared at it. And then I heard my mom walk into my room and when I turned to see her open the door, I looked back and the figure was gone. I tried telling my mom but she never listened. She said I was simply imagining things and that I needed to quit being scared of the woods. The woods protect us from the outside world, Michael. They are a shield to all the bad things in the world. I knew what I saw. And I knew whatever it was, it wasn't protecting me. On the way to school that morning, I felt the presence stronger than ever. Every time I turned around though, nothing was there. Suddenly, I heard a branch snap behind me and I didn't dare turn around. I couldn't move. And then I heard another branch snap and I took off running. I could hear fast steps behind me as I was running, which made me run faster. I could hear the footsteps gaining on me. When it seemed that they were right on me, I burst out into the woods, sweating like a pig. The day went by normal. Once school was over, I asked my friend James if he wanted to walk home with me. James was my best friend and the only person who understood my fear of the woods. He lived close by to me and he also could feel a disturbing presence watching him. He tried telling his parents like I did with mine, but they didn't listen either. Dude, did that really happen? He asked as I told him about what had happened on the walk to school. Yeah, man. I just don't feel comfortable walking in the woods alone. I know there's something there, I said. What do you think it is? James asked as we started walking home. I don't know. I think I saw it last night though. It was like really big with huge long arms. It was far away so I couldn't see anything else. He was quiet now. And then he said, I think I've seen it too. I saw something last night too. It was a lot like the thing you describe. And then we heard a loud snap behind us, 
and turned around to see a tree branch on the ground snapped in half. Dude, something's following us. We need to run, James said. No, don't run. I did that and it chased me. Maybe if we keep walking slowly, it won't do anything. James, looking terrified at me, nodded his head slowly as we started walking. We heard more snaps as we walked, getting louder and closer as we walked. I looked over at James. He looked back at me, white as a ghost. After what felt like an hour, I could see the outline of my house in the distance. Our pace quickened as we got closer and closer to my house, the snaps and cracks quickening as well behind us. As soon as we got close enough, we took off in a dead sprint towards my house, not looking back. We ran inside and locked the door once we had made it. Is everything okay? I heard my mom say behind me. We looked at each other and then I heard James say, Yeah, Mrs. S, we just raced each other to the house. She looked at me and I nodded quickly. Okay, be careful though with the door. It's old and I don't want it falling off the hinges. Okay, sorry mom. I said as James started to run off upstairs. Once upstairs and in my room, James said, Dude, we can't walk that way to school anymore. I know, but what are we going to tell our parents? They won't believe us, I said. James was silent now. I knew that he wouldn't be able to come up with anything. I think as long as we're quiet and walk slowly, that thing won't come after us, I said. Yeah, uh, let's hope so, James said in a quivering voice. James went home shortly after that and after I ate dinner, I headed back upstairs to bed. What is that thing, I think, as I laid in bed? A person, an animal. It's quick like an animal, but it looks like a tall person. I looked out the window into the dark forest and I froze. The thing was there, and closer. I could make out more characteristics as I stared at it. It had a hunchback and long fingers with razor sharp claws. I didn't see any eyes on it, but I could somehow feel its cold stare locked on me. It just stared, observing me. And then it turned around and walked back into the forest. That's no person or animal, I think to myself, once it's gone. It wants me. I'm its prey. After a restless night of sleep, I woke up and walked downstairs to see my mom sitting on the counter with a worried look on her face. Hey mom, is everything okay? I asked. Good morning, honey. I have some bad news. She said, looking at me. What is it? I asked. Your friend James, well, he's missing. His parents went into his room this morning and he was gone. I stood there petrified. It wasn't following us. It was tracking us. Tracking James. Are you okay, Michael? She asked. I could only see James' face in my mind now. The image of him looking at me as we were walking home, white as a ghost. I couldn't keep it in anymore, and I told my mom everything. The thing that had chased me, James and I being stalked by it, 
and seeing it for the past two nights and getting closer to me. You've got to believe me, Mom, I pleaded. Something is in those woods and it took James and now I think it's going to take me. She looked at me with a sad expression. She sighed and then said, I know this must be hard for you, Michael, but there is nothing in those woods. James might have ran away or anything could have happened. Mom, it took him. James would never run away from his parents, I said. She looked at me and then looked at the clock behind me. I think it's time you get to school now, dear. We'll talk about this later. I pleaded with my mom to drive me to school. I begged her on my knees. And she finally relented after a minute. Okay, okay, just this one time. We need to leave now though and be quick. I have to get to the studio. I thanked her and I ran to get my backpack and stuff. Nothing happened on the drive, as I expected. After dropping me off at the front of school, everyone ran up to me and asked if I heard about what had happened to James. Everyone was talking about James that day. They started rumors either saying that he ran away or he was kidnapped. Do you know what happened to him? Sally asked frantically as she ran up to me at lunch. She had had a crush on James since the second grade. And even though James showed no signs of affection towards her, she still adored him. She was a short girl with short brown hair and brown eyes. I debated about whether I should tell Sally the truth, but I knew that she wouldn't believe me. No one would. I told her that I didn't know and tried to continue eating my lunch, but she wouldn't give up. Come on, Michael, you're his best friend. Please, if you know anything that could have happened to him, just tell me. She said with tears in her eyes. I tried ignoring her, but she wouldn't stop. And then her friends came over and started asking. And then more and more people came over asking if I knew what had happened to James. The voices became too much for me, and I screamed. I don't know what happened to him. Just leave me alone. I did it as loud as I could. Everybody stopped talking and just stared at me. My cheeks had turned red as I was embarrassed. The bell rang and everyone started heading off to class, leaving me still sitting at the lunch table. I packed my unfinished lunch and started heading off to my science class which I had next. I decided then and there that I would find James. I had to know if he was alive or not. James, if you're still alive, I'm gonna find you. After school, I called my mom and asked if she could pick me up. She said that she could, and five minutes later, she pulled up in her white Cadillac. As we drove home, she asked, Are you feeling better, honey? I lied, saying, Yeah, much better. I knew that she would never believe me. I was going to have to face that thing on my own. We got home, and I headed straight upstairs where I dumped all of my school supplies on my bed and started to pack gear for that night. I packed a spare flashlight battery, some water, and I put the pepper spray my mom gave to me last year in my pocket just in case. As I was eating dinner, I came up with a plan. I would sneak out of the house when my mom went to bed, which was usually around 10 o'clock, and I would head into the woods and try to find and look for James. I knew my chances against that thing were slim to none, so I knew that I would have to be quiet and careful. 
After dinner, I went to my room and I waited. I waited for hours until I looked over at my clock which read 10.30pm. I hopped out of bed and walked over to the window, opening it quietly. I made a little rope with my bedsheets as I waited, as I knew that I wouldn't be able to jump off the window without getting hurt. I tied the rope against my bed and started to climb out of the house slowly. Once down on the ground, I turned my flashlight on and aimed it towards the woods. It was even more terrifying now. The trees seemed endless and I couldn't even see the moon. I took a deep breath and I started to walk slowly into the woods. I noticed something that started to scare me quickly once I was walking. There was absolute silence, not a peep, no crickets and no owls and nothing. I flashed my light around quickly, calling out James' name quietly. James, James, are you out there? Nothing but silence echoes the woods. I walked towards the directions of James' house, thinking that he may be around there. As I'm about halfway there, the battery for my flashlight dies. Darkness now engulfs me as I panic. I scramble for the batteries in my backpack. Once I find them, I take the dead batteries out to my flashlight and I put the new ones in. When I turned my light back on, I screamed. Standing in front of me was that thing. The fear that I felt was indescribable. Even to this day, the image of it still fills my dreams with nightmares. It had no skin. It was all red muscles and tissues. It had no eyes and its mouth was full of dozens of razor sharp teeth. And it smiled and drooled looking down at me. It was at least nine feet tall and it had a bad hunch to its back. Its claws were even sharper close up, as sharp as its teeth were. Its upper body was big and bulky while its long legs were skinny as a twig. Its arms were huge with big muscles and bulging veins. I screamed even more as it bent down and picked me up by the head. It dragged me across the woods as I kicked and screamed. Stupid, stupid, what the hell were you thinking coming into the woods, I thought. It dragged me until I eventually passed out. When I woke, I found myself in a dark cave, hanging upside down by at least five feet. The cave looked ancient, with three tunnels that led into darkness. I had never seen this cave in the woods, never even knew there was one in the first place. The light that was in the cave was from a single fire in the middle of it. I could see my backpack on the ground with my phone near it. I tried to reach and grab it, but I couldn't move. The thing had wrapped ropes around my ankles to the sharp rocks above me. I was hopeless. I thought to James now as I started to look around the cave. In one of the corners of the caves, I saw a single orange t-shirt on the ground. That was a James shirt, I realized. Suddenly, I heard heavy footsteps walking towards me. I saw the thing walk into the cave as it stared at me. I panicked and started screaming again. And then the thing spoke in a dark and gruff voice. Quiet food. Maybe I'll let you live a little longer. I shut up now, petrified as it spoke to me. I saw in its hand a leg. God, 
Please don't let that be James, I thought. It spoke again. I've been watching you for a long time. You've always looked the most appetizing of everyone. It lifted up the leg in its hand and then said, Your friend here tasted wonderful, but I think you'll taste even better. It said with a twisted grin on its face. I started to cry, weeping at the loss of my friend and knowing that I would follow in his footsteps. Somehow, I got out a question in a shaky voice. What are you? The thing looked down at me for a moment, thinking, and then it said, I am an ancient being. My kind is almost extinct as there are only a few of us left. We have ruled the woods for the past centuries, preying on anything that steps foot on any of our lands. Over time, hunters have come and killed most of my kind. Now we hide in the shadows, only coming out when food is near. I thought for a moment before asking another question. Do you only eat young kids? The thing now smiled, showing off its dozens of teeth as it said, Of course, kids taste the best, juicy and sweet. It had cut me off the ropes with its claws, squeezing me with its ginormous hands as it started to open its mouth. I was barely able to ask one more question. How can you hunt without any eyes? It stared at me, closing its mouth before saying, I can track your scent. My nose serves as my eyes because I have none. I smell my food out before I come for it at night. Lucky for me, I didn't have to come to you. You came to me. It opened its mouth wide as I panicked, starting to throw myself around, trying to get out of its grasp. Hold still, food. It boomed at me. I was somehow able to move my hands into my pocket, where miraculously I felt the pepper spray that didn't fall out of my pocket. I acted quickly as I got closer to the thing's mouth. I pulled out the pepper spray and I sprayed it into its face. It shrieked as it dropped me, crying and holding its face. I got up quickly and ran towards the middle entrance where the creature came from. I ran as quickly as I could, hearing the creature give chase behind me. I ran until I somehow found the entrance to the cave. I saw light illuminating from the entrance as I ran with all my might into the day. I kept running even after I was out of the cave. I ran and I never looked back. I was able to somehow navigate my way through the forest to the cabin. I gave a sigh of relief once I saw the cabin and I stopped running. I looked behind me now, expecting the thing to be right behind me, ready to strike. But nothing was there. I walked back to the cabin out of breath. When I opened the door, my mom ran towards me, embracing me as she cried. Where have you been? I called the police and they couldn't find you. I thought that I had lost you. I didn't say anything. I was tired and hungry, but worst of all, I was terrified knowing that more of those things were out there, waiting for me. We moved shortly after that to Chicago and moved in with my aunt. I grew up normally and made new friends in Chicago, and even got a new best friend named Kyle. 
I never forgot about James, though. He was my first best friend who had my back and died in the hands of a monster. The thought of that thing still haunts me now. I tried telling my mom what happened many times, but I couldn't. I knew that she still wouldn't believe me. What scares me the most is knowing that there are still more of those things out there, hunting in the shadows. I write this story to tell everyone, to warn everyone about these things. They hunt for children, feasting on them. Be careful near the woods. You never know what lurks in these shadows of the trees. Please, don't ever go into the woods at night. They are watching and waiting for you. How to Become a Demon Lord Written by Mammoth Formal What it do, mortals? It's your boy, Seth the Profane of Seattle. For those of you who don't know, I am the second most powerful demon lord in all of the underworld, and commander of 50 legions. If my name didn't give it away, I haven't always been a demon. In fact, I'm a relatively new hire. Still, don't let my inexperience fool you. I'm a pretty big deal down south. I'm back in your world on a very special errand for Satan herself. And despite my important task, I couldn't help but check on good old Mr. Creep's YouTube channel. We don't have internet in hell after all. Fortunately for me, your horrific tales didn't disappoint and they left me feeling inspired. Transcribed below is my story. How a 22-year-old hipster from Seattle became Satan's left-hand man. Take notes and with any luck, you could be next. I graduated from college in early 2015, after racking up a modest 80k in debt. Like most graduates, it didn't take me long to realize that the real world is a pretty crabby place. While all my college friends moved away and landed jobs paying 60000 or more, I ended up sweeping floors for $12 an hour for 60 hours per week. If that wasn't bad enough, I was drowning in credit card debt, gaining weight, and still living with my parents. Within a year, my girlfriend had left me for some guy with more money, bigger muscles, and a nicer car. I didn't blame her. Even my own parents were sick of me by that point. In their minds, I was a massive waste of potential, pushing back their retirement. On July 3rd, 2016, things were feeling pretty dismal. So, I did what any rational 20-something would do, and I tried to think of any way to get out of my current situation. Unfortunately, I probably didn't pick the best way. I fell into a colorless tunnel, only to crash into the ground with the momentum of a runaway truck. Horrible, searing pain caused my vision to fade in and out. When I finally came to... I was lying face down on an obnoxious, red, shad-carpeted floor. What in God's name? I scanned the room in a fear-fueled daze. Aside from the horrible carpet choice, the room looked like a drab, generic waiting room. There is a single row of chairs against the back wall, and a clerk's window manned by a middle-aged man. It kind of reminded me of a dentist's office, minus the hideous carpet, of course. 
Above the window was a simple sign that read, Check in. There were also two wooden doors on each side of the window, labeled heaven and hell, respectively. My heart thumped in my chest as I realized the finality of my actions. I had just forced my hand out of my own life and I was awaiting judgment in some kind of twisted DMV-like afterlife. A curt voice interrupted my horror. Next, please. Upon pulling myself off the floor, I could see the man at the window staring me down. He wore khakis and a gray vest, had graying hair and large round glasses. He looked absolutely dead inside. I stared at him dumbly, like a deer in headlights waiting to be run over. Next, he said loud at this time. He got my attention that time, causing me to stumble to the window. The man wrinkled his brow, looking me over before picking up a script and reading aloud. Dear departed, before you ask, I'm Charles and this place is purgatory. You're not in heaven, nor are you in hell. This is the in-between where you shall receive your assign. I must have looked stupid because he put the script down suddenly before staring blankly at me. Look, son, let's not drag this out. You're Seth Foster, right? I nodded. And you know what you did to get out of your life. You're going to hell. You know, lakes of fire, eternal torment. My heart sank as I stood there, frozen in terror. All I had wanted was a way out. I didn't really want to die. I didn't know that I would go to hell just for that. It's not like I killed an innocent person. Think about it, you killed an innocent person, kid. What did you ever do to anyone? Charles stamped a form and stapled it to a packet of other papers before extending them to me and gesturing toward the hell door. I reached out to grab the papers and defeat before he all but wrenched them from my hand. He was quiet for a minute as he combed through more paperwork. Well, this makes my life harder. I spelled your middle name wrong. Charles fumed. So, does this mean I don't go to hell? I asked hopefully. Oh no, you'll still burn for eternity. It just means that I get reamed out and you have to talk to my boss. Before I could react, I plummeted through the familiar tunnel once again. Only this time, I could see the ground on the other end. It was hard to make anything out, but I could recognize a small, lone wooden shack on a beach. I fell faster than before and came crashing through the roof of the shack. I looked around in shock and terrible pain, as an equally confused, robed man stood up from behind an enormous desk. The man's voice boomed impossibly loud. Really, Charles, again? Before I could ask anything, the man read my mind. Yes, I'm God, and yes, you are still going to hell. I just need to fix your paperwork. Before God could say anything else, I did something incredibly stupid. I told him how horrendous the carpet choice in purgatory was. The creator of the universe stared at me in complete bewilderment, filled with rage. In an instant, he grew to an unfathomable size and clenched me in his fist. Fire and brimstone aren't enough for ya, you blasphemous worm. No mortal has ever disrespected me like this. I should flay your soul. His voice echoed through the universe. I grimaced, expecting to be crushed into a pulp until I reappeared in God's office once again. He stood in front of me, thankfully having reverted back to normal size. 
his expression was softer, and he wore a wide grin. Now, with that being said, you are absolutely right. That's what happens when you give Lucy any kind of creative control. She ruins everything. Um, Lucy? I asked, still shaking from my recent brush with eternal damnation. Oh, sorry, you know her as Lucifer. She's pretty hot too, you know. He said as he took a seat at his desk and began scribbling on my paperwork. By this point, I was dreading whatever dreadful fate God could think of. He was probably writing down all sorts of creative torments for Satan to inflict on me. He continued his meticulous scrawling before glancing at me. You know, we had to compromise on that waiting room. Her original idea was just ridiculous, but she's absolutely venomous. So, I ceded the carpet selection to her. A horrible idea, really. God held my paperwork out to me, but before I could grab it, it turned to dust. I shivered, thinking that he had devised some new horrific way to punish me for my outburst. Oh, relax, Seth. Despite your insolence, you're the first mortal to question that vile carpet. I simply can't let you burn forever. It's a matter of principle. God rubbed his forehead clearly thinking carefully before speaking again. But I can't let you into heaven either. You know, what you did and all. I wondered what he meant. Would I spend eternity in purgatory with Charles? To be honest, that didn't seem any better than hell. We'll have to give you a job. I, however, do not have any openings that you would be suited for. Only the holiest of individuals get those jobs. And your Sunday service attendance record is mediocre at best. God said with a chuckle. Confusion sank its claws deeper into me. None of this could be real. This had to be some kind of nightmare. I was probably in a medically induced coma after being found, somehow clinging to life, by my parents. God pulled out a massive dusty tome and perused through it. Oh, you're college educated, so you'll love this. How about a reaper of mortal flesh? It's a mid-level job in the third level of hell. Uh, what? I asked. God shrugged his shoulders at my question. I couldn't even tell you. It's that or purgatory with Charles, though. It didn't take me long to weigh my options. On one hand, I had an eternity of hellish torture. And on the other, I had an eternity of immeasurable boredom. It's not like that I had any luck finding a job in life, and now I had God himself offering me a mid-level position. I'll take it, I said. And before I could say anything else, my skin melted away from my bones, allowing my insides to become my outsides. I writhed about on the ground, looking at God in horror, as my bones snapped and bent in a slew of horrible ways. I had trusted him, and he betrayed me. Just before I died by some miracle, my skin regrew, replaced by thick red scales. Two razor-sharp pairs of claws replaced my fingers, and I could feel something heavy on my back, as if I was wearing a backpack. What did you do to me? I barked in a voice much harsher than my own. Well, if you're going to do the job, you need to wear the uniform, God said with a shrug. God snapped his fingers in yet again. I hurtled through the putrid, sulfuric air towards the ground. This time, the ground below was a black, mirror-looking material. Obsidian. 
Below me were mountains of obsidian, stretching as far as the eye could see. I flailed about wildly, trying to avoid a surely painful landing. And to my complete horror, the backpack sensation on me had shifted. The terror of falling had changed to elation, as my new wings carried me over obsidian cliffs. After what felt like hours of flying, I came to a stretch of what appeared to be noxious swamps. In the swamps below me were hundreds of red-scaled, naked humanoid figures, pulling normal humans from these swamps as they screamed. The creatures whipped the humans with vicious-looking flogs before binding them and throwing them into massive wooden carts. They were harvesting humans. I didn't want the horrific creatures to see me and throw me in the cart too, and so I pressed on, not going in any particular direction. A few minutes later, the silhouettes of a massive city appeared in the distance. The towering ramparts appeared to be made of the same obsidian as the mountains that I had already flown over. I had a hunch that this was where I needed to go, so I kept flapping my wings, not wanting to be on the ground with whatever those things were. Before I reached the city, I saw and smelled one last disgusting sight, and that was the carts of people being unloaded and herded into wooden buildings like cattle. Pans which were filled with flocks of humans surrounded these buildings. I didn't need my worthless bachelor's degree to tell me that these buildings were slaughterhouses for humans. I kept flying, not wanting to meet the butchers who operated the slaughterhouses. Eventually, I came to the city walls. They were towering at least 100 feet high. My first mistake was trying to fly over the wall. A heavy boulder smashing into my ribs caused me to crumple to the ground in front of the city gate. I tried to run, but I found myself in the iron grip of another demon. Before I could fight back, the monstrous behemoth held a large, serrated sword to my throat. Speak thou name or I'll gut you like a squealing hog, it roared. Seth, I'm Seth. God sent me here to be the new reaper of immortal flesh. Don't gut me, I begged the creature. The behemoth dropped me immediately and helped me off the ground. My lord, a thousand apologies. I am Balak the Defiler, guardian of the West Gate, he said. Uh, it's fine, I guess. Uh, could you please just tell me where I'm going? Balak bowed to me before roaring once more. Oh, Shrek, come hither, you pathetic swine. I gasped as a hideously deformed, goblin-esque creature emerged from the gate and threw himself at Bollock's feet. Master, I live to serve, the creature sniveled. Oh, Shrek, you will lead Lord Steth, the profane, to the citadel. Without another word, Oh, Shrek grabbed my hand and began running through the city streets, toward a massive obsidian tower in the center. A slew of evil-looking, disease-ridden creatures filled the streets of hell. Many looked different from each other. Some were huge, while others were small like children. But still, they were all performing one vicious act of torture or another on some poor soul. At one point, I repressed a gag as I saw a creature that resembled Ultrak, flailing a man and hanging his skin from a pole like a gruesome flag. When the stroll had ended and I had witnessed the perversions of hell, we had reached the Citadel, a truly awe-inspiring structure taller than anything I had ever seen, including the surrounding walls. Oshrak did not show any sign of being tired from the track, 
and proceeded to all but drag me up thousands of stairs. After hours of climbing, we had reached the throne room. Sitting on the throne against the far wall was the most beautiful woman I had ever seen. She had long, flowing black hair, blood-red eyes, and was wearing a scant dress that barely covered anything. God was right. Satan is hot. My jaw dropped to the floor as Lucifer approached me, like a lion stalking a prey. Aren't you just magnificent, Seth of Seattle? You'll do well here in hell, she mused, running a finger down my chest. Believe me, it was awkward. Imagine having that sexual tension with the deceiver of humanity. You don't seem that evil, I blurted out. Upon hearing this, her elegant body contorted into a demon, with massive fangs and claws on the hind legs of a goat. Is this more fitting? She hissed in my ear. I swallowed in fear before sheepishly nodding. Yeah, hard pass. Good. She whispered in my ear before transforming back. Shagor the Dreadful will be your supervisor. You'll help keep our slaughterhouses full until you fully mature. After that, it'll be your responsibility to feed all of hell. The slaughterhouses are about as terrible as one would imagine. And Shagor as well, dreadful. The upside is that I was good at my first job. Within a year, I had fixed a food shortage that had been plaguing hell for millennia. My solution... A citywide purge of the weakest demon class. Fewer mouths to feed means more flesh for the rest of us. After my resounding success, Lucifer or Lucy, as I get to call her now, rewarded me handsomely. She gifted me a fortune in gold, command of 50 legions, and made me her left-hand man if you know what I mean. Despite my close relationship with Lucy, I still haven't told her that her taste in carpet sucks. In 2016, the teenagers in my town started exploding. We didn't disappear. We became something else. Written by Lost Girl Found. I guess I should start by saying that I'm not on drugs. It feels stupid just writing this because I've never touched anything like that. I smoked a little in my senior year one time, and it made me sick. I've never been in contact with any of the really bad stuff, though. Before I tell you what's been going on, I want you to know that, because this is going to sound really crazy... Like, I've just ripped it out of the latest bestseller. I don't know much about this app, but I know you can put up your paranormal experiences in hope of someone out there having an idea of what's going on. That's what I need right now. I need one of you to tell me what I've seen because after careful deliberation, I'm starting to think that I'm actually losing the plot. Okay, so I'll start from the beginning. My name is Holly and I'm 18 years old and I'm currently studying creative writing and linguistics at Centerville College. I feel like I should give you some kind of background about me, but I don't think it's important. I just want to tell you this because who else am I supposed to talk to? My parents? No way. They'll think I've finally lost it. And so I'm telling you, 
Hopefully, one of you knows what's happening. Maybe it's not just my college. Anyway, here we go. Everything started when I got an email with my new class schedule for this coming semester. I was eating lunch with some of my friends when the notification had popped up on my phone. Mia Sparks was talking loudly about a date that she had ditched in the middle of Starbucks because he wouldn't pay for a drink. And I was struggling to take her seriously when she was waving around her brand new iPhone 11. Now, I don't have designated friends, I would say. But I do hang around with most people from my English class. They're pretty chill and I figured it's either follow them or spend the majority of my time in my dorm room. I still haven't managed to get over the hurdle of basic communication with them. So I just sit and listen to the buzz of their conversations. Anyway, Mia had our table immersed in her story and was exaggerating every word with insane hand gestures. I was half listening. The cafeteria was pretty quiet that afternoon. I was halfway through my mystery meat burger, anticipating the climax of the story which was coming. I could tell by the girl's facial expressions. My phone vibrated in my lap and I glanced down. I had been idly scrolling down Instagram before Mia had announced that she had so-called tea to spill. Skimming the email, I figured nothing had changed. I had already heard from the others about the professors and the workload, so there was no point in reading everything. But something caught my eye. I'm used to my classes starting at 9 and ending at 4. It's been like that since I had started in September. Except for this time, according to my new schedule. I had a night class. It didn't make sense. I know that I didn't apply to one, but I wasn't seeing things. I had my usual classes, and then a gap, and then a night class from 9pm to midnight. Night classes here are pretty normal. My roommate takes them for Spanish since she has a long-distance boyfriend who lives in Spain. But night classes are just that. They're usually there for students who want to learn something new. My roommate did ask me if I wanted to join her in the Spanish classes, since the girls' dorms are right next to the college, but I had politely declined. I used my nights to either call my parents or binge-watch trashy Netflix shows. Squinting at the yellow-colored block on my schedule, I peered at the text. English 1600-8 Introduction to Film Tuesday and Thursday, 9pm to 12am. The class was in the English building, but I didn't recognize the room number or the professor's initials. I didn't think much of it for the rest of the day. It was probably a mistake, but I figured I would check it out with student services just in case. When my classes were over, I headed to the main reception. The woman behind the desk was around my mother's age. She was reading a dog-eared copy of Harry Potter, and I couldn't help wincing at the coffee stains tainting the back cover. She looked confused when I choked out that there was some kind of misunderstanding, and then gave me a long, withering look before turning to the ancient-looking computer in front of her and started typing, her fingers dancing across the keyboard, dust flying off the keys. I was in a sort of a daze, wondering if her computer would load a basic YouTube video, 
when she turned back to me with an exaggerated sigh. Behind me, two older boys were wrestling each other and laughing loudly, trying to push each other out of the line. Hey, the woman snapped. Either stop acting like children or take it outside, alright? You're not in high school anymore, boys. You look like seniors. You should know better. The boys stopped automatically and straightened up, the two of them muttering apologies, and the woman nodded with an eye roll before turning her attention back to me. She settled me with a smile which didn't quite reach her eyes. No, it's no mistake, Miss Charles, she said, her gaze flicking back to the computer screen. The woman stabbed the monitor with a manicured fingernail. It says here that you've been put down for that particular class. Introduction to film with Professor White. I did my best to nod. Ah, right, I said, struggling to maintain a polite smile. I could sense the boys' stares, their gazes burning into my back. Is there any way that you could remove me? I think I've been mistaken with someone else. The woman shook her head. I'm afraid not, Miss Charles. This class is required. I nearly choked. What? But I don't understand. I didn't sign up for any classes and I'm not. There is no mistake. The woman was growing impatient and the queue building up behind me were murmuring. I could feel my cheeks starting to blaze with embarrassment. Holly Charles, you are expected to be in room 1600-8 at 9pm tonight, until midnight. If you have any problems, I suggest you talk to the professor. Now, is there anything else that I can help you with? I nodded. My facade had crumbled. I wasn't going to stand there and act polite when my free time was being taken from me. Actually, yes, I said with a smile. Could I possibly speak to the professor? I do think there's been some kind of misunderstanding. The woman leveled her gaze at me. Miss Charles, if you want to talk to Professor White, I expect you to do it in your own time. If you want to know why you have been put into the class, might I suggest you take a look at your grades? It was a hard blow, but I just smiled like an idiot and I made a quick getaway. I wouldn't say my grades are bad, but they aren't the best. I love the creative side of my classes, like writing stories but the other side, like analyzing poems and pieces of literature. I can't seem to be able to get my head around it. I've been told that I'm excelling in the creative side, but as for everything else, I'm failing miserably. The extra night classes suddenly made a hell of a lot more sense and I felt stupid for standing there arguing with the woman. It was pitch black when I finally made it out of the student services building. The girls' dorms were only a five-minute walk from campus. I grabbed a coffee from the campus Starbucks and took my time walking back to my dorm. A guy was sitting on my roommate's bed when I got back. Though it's normal for Cassie to have random guys in her room, I ignored him dumped my bag and coat, and I fixed myself some food. There was a leftover pizza from the night before. Not exactly healthy, but it was filling. I spent the rest of the evening just chilling out. The class started at 9, 
so I ended up rewatching Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I passed out at some point, with my laptop in front of me. When I woke up, Cassie and her latest hookup were arguing about something trivial. It was nearly half past eight according to my laptop. I jumped up, managing to knock the empty plate off my bed. Cassie threw a stuffed toy at me in greeting. That's how we communicate when she has a guy around. I wanted to ask her why she was sleeping with random guys when she had a boyfriend, but maybe that was a little insensitive. Cassie and I worked as roommates. We're not best friends, but I consider her as someone close to me. I did get a few words out of her when I got ready for my night class. She was hanging upside down from her bed while the nameless guy was cross-legged typing on his phone. Every once in a while, he would show her the screen and she would break out into laughter. Where are you going? Cassie straightened up, her dark hair a frizzy mess in her eyes. Are you going to a party? Night class, was all I said, flashing her a tired smile. What? Cassie lay back down with a light laugh. I thought you didn't want to throw your nights away. It's not like I had a choice. I told her that before grabbing my bag and leaving quickly, before she could respond. It was 9pm exactly when I finally found room 1600-8. It was a lecture hall. The place was huge, though there were only around 15 or so students. A screen was being set up at the front and I braced myself for a movie night. I knew next to nothing about film study, so I was planning on keeping my head down. Two kids sat in front of me, a boy with reddish-brown hair and what sounded like an Aussie accent, and a girl with short, blonde curls. They were talking pretty loudly, and I wanted to talk to them. All it took was leaning over my laptop and introducing myself, but I couldn't bring myself to speak. My phone vibrated, and I glanced down at my lab. A text had popped up on my notifications from my mom. Study hard, sweetie. I love you. I needed that. Some kind of reassurance urging me to keep going. I tapped on the message and started to text back when someone tapped me on the shoulder. Twisting around, I found myself staring at a tall boy with dark hair and a friendly look in his eyes. He shoved his phone in my face. Have you seen this girl? The tone of his voice had startled me. I started to shake my head but my gaze caught his phone screen. There is a photo of a smiling, dark-haired girl who looked like she was mid-laugh. I shook my head at him. I just started. The boy's eyes darkened. He pocketed his phone and leaned towards me, his warm breath grazing my ear. Get out of here. Jerking away from him, I frowned. What? The boy looked like he might answer before a voice sounded out. Mr. Tate, what are you doing in my class? I followed the voice. A man had entered the room. He was maybe my dad's age with graying hair. He wore casual jeans and a t-shirt. And there was an amused smile pulling at his lips. Is there a reason why you're in here or are you here to piss me off? The two kids in front of me stopped chatting and turned their attention to the professor. All around the room, other kids followed suit. 
I expected the boy to leave, but he scowled at the professor. You know exactly why I'm here. The man folded his arms. His smile was challenging. Do tell, Mr. Tate. Isabel, the boy spat. Where is she? The professor inclined his head. Mr. Tate, I'm afraid I haven't seen Miss Suarez in a while. He cleared his throat. If I do see her, I'll make sure to let you know. Now, I have a class to teach. I'm sure that you have somewhere to be. The dark-haired boy opened his mouth to argue, but the professor was quick to cut him off. Now, Mr. Tate. To my surprise, the kid turned and walked out, slamming the door behind him. In front of me, the blonde giggled to the red-haired boy. Wow. Wow indeed, Miss Chase. The professor was all smiles again. He nodded to the class with a wave. Good evening, everyone. Now bear with me while I set up the projector. Today, you will be watching Les Quatres Sans Coups, also known as the 400 Blows. When the hall erupted into groans, he laughed. It's good. It defines the French in New Wave. Is it in black and white? The blonde laid her head on the redhead's shoulder with an exaggerated yawn. Can we watch something interesting? The professor nodded with a smirk. Oh yeah, it's in black and white in this chase. Might I remind you that you are here to learn not to be entertained. The blonde leaned back in her chair with a chuckle. Alright, you got me there. While the other students chatted amongst themselves, I psyched myself up to raise my hand and announce my presence. Everyone seemed to know each other and blanked me. But when I was raising my arm, the screen in front lit up in white light, and the professor was back at the front. Alright, so use this session to take in the movie, and next time you can take notes and we can have a discussion. For now, why not sit back and enjoy the movie, okay? Though in case you do want to take notes, feel free. He pointed to the redhead next to the blonde. Mr. Wilder, I've sent a docs file with some pointers to your email. The boy nodded. Thanks, Teach. The lights flickered off. I shut off all the tabs on my laptop and I took off my jacket and I got comfy. Now, the professor clapped his hands. Shall we begin? I waited for 400 blows to start. Except the movie didn't start playing. The screen was still lit up, but nothing came on. I expected it to be a glitch of some sort, and I looked around, waiting for the other students to start murmuring or laughing. But the other kids had straightened up in their chairs, all of them looking directly at the screen where a small black dot had appeared in the center. It looked to be pulsating and blinking rapidly. I struggled to properly focus on it, and that's when it happened. I don't know what it was. I felt my arms drop to my lap. My body slumped forwards, as if falling from my control, and something else taking hold of it. I couldn't move. Opening my mouth to cry out, I couldn't. My gaze was glued to the pulsating dot, and I couldn't look away. I couldn't look away. Okay. The professor's voice sounded louder in my ears. 
Just like last time, I want you to focus on the dot. I tried to scream, but my body wasn't mine. I had no control over it. A noise started up, some kind of buzzing. A whirring which felt like it was digging into my skull. The air felt strange around me, like it was alive, prickling with electricity. At the corner of my eye, the professor was a row in front of me. He loomed over a girl with pigtails. The noise grew louder in my ears, an incessant buzzing. It took me a moment to realize that it was coming from the two kids in front of me, the blonde and the redhead. Like the others, they were staring forwards, but I could have sworn the blonde's desk was trembling. Lena, the professor snapped. I know you can do it. Try harder. There was no reply. The girl Lena couldn't hear him. None of them could. They were in some kind of trance. The noise seemed to waver before collapsing into a dull screeching. This time, the blonde's notebook shot off of the desk. She hadn't moved. I know she didn't move because the blonde was frozen. Above us, the lights flickered. I was staring at the dot which was bouncing across the screen when something popped. At first, I didn't know what it was, but something hit me. It was warm and wet. It oozed down the front of my face. A scarlet smear I was in denial of at first. It couldn't be, I thought hysterically. But it was. It was red. I saw red, and I knew it was red. Something red had hit me, and I couldn't move. I couldn't breathe. The noise had stabilized. But something inside me knew that it was Lena that had popped. And it was Lena that was covering me. Pity. The professor's voice was ringing in my head, and the dot was still dancing, twirling around the screen. He cleared his throat. He was talking to someone, but I don't know who it was. You were doing so well, Miss Daniels. The professor hummed. Don't just stand there and clean her up. And Mark Miss Daniels has failed. And then he was jogging up the steps towards me. No, not me. He was heading towards the kids in front of me. My best students, he beamed. I noticed there was red on the redhead's desk. It was dripping. I don't know if it was him, if he was the one bleeding, or if he too was covered in Lena. I had to concentrate on something. I had to focus on anything that wasn't the warm and wet blood stuck to my hair and staining me, painting me in her. It was paint, I kept telling myself. I was covered in paint. Paint, paint. Kenji... The man leaned forward towards the frozen boy. I expect more from you after yesterday's session. The boy didn't respond. He didn't move. His expression was frozen. Brown eyes glued to the screen. I waited for it to happen to him. I waited. Oh God. I waited for him to pop. The buzzing started up in my ears again. And I felt it like a physical entity climbing into my skull. A swarm of bees feasting on brain tissue. The air around me swam. I felt it prickle, tiny needles sticking into my skin. The professor leaned further, his hand whipping out and gripping the boy's hair. Kenji's body was limp, 
his head lolling, but his eyes didn't leave the screen. Do it, the professor hissed. You have all been subjugated, so I expect you all to deliver. Maybe I was hallucinating. Maybe I was seeing things because my mind was a whirlwind. Until that moment, Kenji's hands had been on the desk palms down. The noise, the buzzing, the wavering. It was growing erratic. The boy's hands clenched into fists and then flexed. His laptop in front of him seemed to jerk. And like invisible hands were wrapping themselves around it, the MacBook lifted into the air, hovering. Kenji's hands flexed once again, and the laptop dropped back down. Next to Kenji, the blonde was doing the same thing. Her hands were balled into fists and then coming apart, and her textbook was hovering in front of her, before dropping in sync with the laptop. I could only see the two of them, but from the sound of gentle thuds around the room, the pencils and pens falling back on a desk, the same thing was happening to the other students. No, sweet Lily, I don't even have to ask you, do I? The professor chuckled, before heading back to the front. I don't know what happened after that. I couldn't move. I don't know how long for. My mind seemed to shut down, but I never tore my eyes from the screen. From the black dot. At some point, the red had been taken off of me. I don't know how. Maybe it wasn't even there in the first place. That's what I kept thinking. That's what I kept hoping. It felt like a century had passed when I finally blinked. My body was mine again. The lights had come on, and all around me my classmates were stretching in their seats and turning to their friends, chatting. My hands went to my face to peel at the red still tainting my skin, but there was nothing to scrub away. Nobody was screaming, not even me. The professor was back at the front. Alright, 400 blows, what do you guys think? Boring, Lily retorted with a laugh. She nudged Kenji, who was packing up his bag. The two of them were like me. There was no red. Lena was no longer covering them. I'm pretty sure Kenji fell asleep. The boy laughed. I did not. He rubbed at his eyes. I thought it was pretty good actually. My gaze went to where Lena had been sitting. The girl was gone and there were no traces of her. No blood, no red. No deep cardinal stain in her desk and chair. And the floor beneath where she had sat. I could still see her. The pigtails that I had subconsciously thought were childish. Her blue eyes when she had turned and smiled at everyone. Her lips curved around the end of her pen. Alright, that's it for this session. The professor was beaming. Hey, nice work today, guys. Kenji and Lily jumped up, and there was a moment when I thought that they were going to start screaming. When the true horror of what they had been through registered in their heads. But they didn't scream. Lily grabbed Kenji's arm and nuzzled into him. Their voices sounded strange. Alien. Like I wasn't really hearing them. My place? He nodded with a grin. I have crashed Bandicoot on my Switch so I can beat your butt at it. The blonde shoved him. I'd like to see you try. I don't know why I was paying so much attention to them. 
I wanted to talk to them, but I wanted to ask them what the heck just happened, but my mouth wouldn't work. I left the class and the second I was pushing my way through the door out into a blizzard, I threw up. I was on my knees in two inches of snow, heaving up my crappy meal from earlier, and someone was talking to me, shouting at me, but their voice was barely registering. I could still see the dot wavering in my peripheral vision. It was right there teasing me, mocking me. Hey, hey you, what happened in there? Are you okay? Do you need me to call someone? Look, my name is... I pushed past him and shook my head, swiping bile from my lips. It was warm like the blood, like Lena, spilling down my chin. I depressed my lips together to stop myself from barfing again. Fine, I heard myself say, forcing my legs to carry me. I felt weak like I was going to collapse, but I willed myself to keep going. My body was on autopilot. I don't remember coming home. I'm wet and cold and I can't stop throwing up. I've showered four times, but I can still feel Lena on me. I can still feel her on me. Get her off of me. Someone is banging at my door. Cassie's asleep, but I don't want to wake her. I don't want to scare her. Please, you have to help me. Am I crazy? Disclaimer. I want to make it clear to you that this happened in the year 2016. What our town is and never told the world, and if they have... The world have kept it silent. I've been advised to talk about my experience, but sitting here on my laptop and just typing is so much better. I want someone out there to know what happened to me and my friends. I want to tell someone, and you guys seem like the best people to pour my life out to. The average human being is supposed to sneeze four times a day, according to Google at least. Obviously, test results aren't always completely scientifically accurate. That's the most recent estimate. I, however, at 16 years of age, had managed to bypass that statistic by a mile. I wasn't the first and certainly I wouldn't be the last. But it was rather these circumstances surrounding me that made my case a lot more interesting. Though it wasn't anything to be proud of. I had sneezed nearly 14 times in a row in the space of a few minutes, and after desperately trying to stifle spluttered cough attacks attacking my chest, I was pretty sure that I was dying. 14 sneezes wasn't too serious. In fact, there was a Guinness World Record achievement for 82 sneezes held by 18-year-old Lana Seldom from Germany, the forest of course. Though the thing was, I wasn't just sneezing. To put it simply, my body felt like it was on fire. My limbs were numb. Every sneeze felt closer to projecting my lungs from my bloody lips. Bloody because every sneeze was agonizing, violently shaking my trembling body with every sternutation. Whatever the heck was happening to me, it wasn't your average sickness. It wasn't normal, and for the first time in my life, I wondered if I was really dying. If that was it, the light at the end of the tunnel, 
I didn't know what dying felt like. I was practically a kid. I didn't even have a driver's license. I was, however, pretty sure that normal people weren't supposed to sneeze themselves to death. Because that would be hilarious, honestly. It would be the bizarre, totally non-funny plot of a Adam Sandler movie that got shoved onto Netflix. Because that wasn't how you were supposed to die. It was either a heart attack or a brain hemorrhage, especially so young. I didn't understand why it was my time. My life, or I guess my normal life had ended, stumbling down some dead-end street on the south side of our little town. I should probably say that our town isn't very well known, or small, small enough to be forgotten. There are about 1,500 of us, and everyone knows everyone's business. Our high school have around 100 kids per year group. We're pretty small. I was scared. I was more scared than I had ever been in my life. My steps were stumbled, and I could barely hold myself. Every movement meant more coughing, more spluttering. My hands over my nose, getting water with stark red. That's what I called it anyway. Red. I didn't want to call it what it really was. Because then, I would be admitting to myself that I was bleeding out. That every orifice was bleeding out. And there was so much red. And it was everywhere. It was on my clothes and the tips of my fingers. I could feel it dribbling down my chin. And wet on my lips. So much red. And I wasn't ready to accept it. I wasn't ready to come to terms that my body, for whatever reason, was rejecting me. It didn't make sense. I remember saying it over and over again, muttering it to myself. Though it kind of did, I was just in a crap load of denial. The truth was in the back of my mind. I had been expecting it. I wasn't the first one with symptoms. I had already seen them hours before, and I had ignored it. My first instinct was to call my father. He wouldn't know what to do, surely. Dad always knew what to do. Slipping trembling hands into my pockets, I grabbed for my phone. And at that same moment, something trickled from my nose. Something wet and warm snaking down my skin. Tainting me, painting me like my body was its canvas. It reminded me of earlier on in the afternoon, when everything had been reasonably normal, for me at least. I had been sitting a few seats behind another student in AP English, Clara Mayer. She was one of the popular girls, someone who stood out among the crowd. Clara had short blonde hair and wore pastel colors, like she was a walking Instagram edit. The girl had worn a flower crown every day that week, and I remember staring hard at it, wondering if the thing weaved through her curls would attract bugs. The flower crown on that particular day looked odd. Blooming white roses that looked pretty. Sure, but clashed with the blood pouring from her nose and pooling between her pale fingers pressed over her mouth and nose. It made her look almost angelic. It was childish innocence placed on the head of a dying girl. I thought it was a nosebleed. And so did Clara, maybe. She had grabbed a tissue from her bag and pressed it to her nose, hunching over further. I continued to ignore her, 
I thought about other things. The weekend that was coming up and having no friends to spend it with. Oh well. There was always The Sims. It's if my father wasn't using my laptop to gamble away my child support. I thought of a lot of things that afternoon. Most of which were nothing to do with school or Clara or my dissipating classmates. I didn't notice the empty chairs dotted around me. I wanted to remain ignorant. I wanted to ignore Clara's stifled coughing that she was trying to hide, hunched over her textbook, which wasn't open. I wanted to ignore the cuffs of her cardigan sleeves splashed with red, and her small body quivering in her chair, her hands flexing and then curling into fists. And then I couldn't ignore it anymore. I couldn't push it into the back of my head. Clara was coughing violently. She was well aware that there was something wrong with her. Maybe she was in shock, staring at her hands, which were splattered red. There was so much red, and the girl was frozen in her seat. Miss Mayer, Mr. Carlson, who had his back turned to the class, cleared his own throat. I suggest that you pay a visit to the nurse's office, young lady. If you're ill, you shouldn't have come to school in the first place. After a moment's silence, Clara had stood up and wiped her hands on her dress, which wasn't a good idea. She was still coughing, spluttering, and staggering, like her body was refusing to hold her weight. I had watched her dart to the door in single strides, her expression twisted with determination. She knew what coughing again would entail. Excuse me, Clara had whispered to the teacher and then to the class before yanking open the door and slipping through. I could hear her coughing all the way down the hall. I could hear her labored breathing, her struggles to suck in oxygen. And I had forgotten all about her. The class had continued. Mr. Carlson had yelled at Becca Jason for being late, and the remainder of us had laughed nervously at the class clown's jokes. I don't think any of us wanted to believe that Clara was sick. A Clara was dying. And approximately three hours later, I had it. Whatever the heck it was, it worked quickly. I was in a daze, blinking through feathered vision, trying to find my father's number on my phone. But everything was a blur. Nothing made sense in the mind fog, and I was drowning in it. A roar. I teared up at the nickname that my dad had gave me but it was slurred and wrong. I knew what was wrong with him automatically, but I felt too sick to be angry, too sick to be disappointed that he had once again failed to be a father. I imagined my dad knelt on our bathroom floor, his forehead stuck to the cool plastic toilet seat. In one hand was his battered phone, and in the other hand was a half bottle of whiskey. I had taken a deep breath to steal myself, to stop myself shouting, because this was why my mom left. I wanted to cry. Instead though, I gripped my phone tighter and prayed he was lucid. Dad, I said softly, Dad, there's something wrong with me. There was a pause before a shuffling sound. What are you talking about, Rory? What's up? He gurgled a laugh. Are you feeling sniffly? 
I've got some painkillers in my jacket. I don't know how strong they are, though. Sniffly. I wanted to laugh. I tried not to, but it came out explosively, before turning into a cough which nearly took me to my knees. More blood ran, and I could taste it. Rusty coins on my tongue. Jesus, Dad hissed. Rory McKinn, what did I tell you about smoking, huh? You're heading for an early grave. Yeah, I kind of was. Butting back a sarcastic retort, I shook my head. In front of me, the sky was a funny color. I don't know if it was my vision, or a dense darkness had started to envelop the horizon. It almost looked like it was alive, moving through the air. And turning my attention back to my phone, I shook my head. No, Dad, I'm sick. Like, really sick. Before he could speak, I cut in with a hiss. Clara Mare, she had some kind of sickness and I think I've caught it. What? I couldn't tell if Dad was amused or freaked out. Like a stomach virus. What have you got, some kind of cough? I didn't answer for a moment. My tongue was tied. I didn't know what to say. Rory. The way Dad was saying my name was making me tear up. Boy, where are you? I struggled to reply. On the other side of town, I said, recognizing the street. My whole childhood had been whizzing down the road on my bike, squealing with delight, before flipping over my handlebars and skinning my knees. I knew exactly where I was. I followed the moving cloud of black which was swallowing up the sun. I'm near Jonah's house. My first initial reaction was to go straight to Jonah's house. It was just on the road, barely five minutes away. Jonah had been my best friend until freshman year, when he had traded video games for varsity. I held a grudge ever since. But if I was dying, if I really was dying, then I didn't want my last memory of him to be a petty argument that should have been resolved years ago. Both of us were stubborn. I wanted to go to him, obviously, but not in that state. I just wanted my dad. Dad. I spoke slowly, careful not to incite another coughing fit. Dad, I need you to come and get me. There was no reply for a second, and for one awful moment, I thought he had ended the call. But then his voice was coming through, prickly with static. Stay where you are, okay? I'll break out Black Betty. I nodded, even when I knew my dad couldn't see it. Before I could make a fool of myself even more, crying out to him and pressing him to get there quicker, I ended the phone call. There is a bench on the sidewalk and I collapsed into it, struggling to hold back another sneeze that I knew would bring more blood. There was something inside me setting my insides on fire, but I was still shivering. I was freezing cold, wrapping my arms around myself. I kept stealing glances to the darkening sky and wondering why it was so dark. I don't know how long I sat on that bench. It was long enough for the sky to quickly turn a strange shade of black, a shade I wasn't sure existed. There was no moon, no stars, because it was still daytime. 
It was 4 p.m. on a warm July day. Rory McCann. The voice had startled me after what felt like hours of staring at the cracks in the sidewalk. There were two men standing over me, both of them dressed head to toe in black, both of them wearing visors. Looking them up and down, I was already suspicious. They weren't part of the sheriff's department. I stared at them stupidly before one of them cleared their throat. There is an authority to his tone which I didn't like. I didn't like the fact that the sky was dark when it was still daytime, and the two of them barely batted an eyelid. Rory McCann, the man repeated, his voice muffled by the visor. You're authorized to come with us. I shook my head, swiping at my bloody nose. No, my voice was weak. No, my dad's coming to get me. That won't be possible, the other man said. We are required to bring in children infected with N7. No, my voice was shaking. I had no idea what N7 was, and I didn't want to know. I told you, my dad's coming. I trailed off when it sort of hit me, like a weight to the chest. My father had contacted them. Of course he had. He didn't want to deal with it on his own. I could have cried. With that clear, I stood up. I don't need your help. One of the men reached into his pocket and my stomach flipped over. But the man didn't pull out a gun or a taser. Instead, a light bulb. I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. Mr. McCann... The man holding the light bulb cleared his throat. Very professional. We've been led to believe that you are infected with N7. He gestured to the ball with a jerk of his head. At 9am this morning, a leak was reported from the West County Power Plant. Whatever it is that has escaped appears to be infecting people under the age of 18. My head started spinning. Clara, her father worked at the plant but I refused to believe whatever N7 was would be detected through a light bulb. I blinked at the two men. My nose was bleeding again, but I didn't swipe it. Opening my mouth to sputter questions, I was interrupted by a yell. There was someone being dragged down the sidewalk. As they got closer, I realized it was a kid being apprehended by these same men in black. The kid had a gangly figure, dark red hair, a scruffy mess on top of his head. Jonah. As the three of them got closer, I realized Jonah was in the same state as me. His skin was white, really white. The blood painting his face contrasted perfectly to the white. My friend was crying. I had never seen him cry and I had known him since kindergarten. But there he was, stumbling over himself, coughing and spluttering. Blood pooling from his nose and mouth. Jonah was infected too. Rory! Jonah hissed, his eyes widening. One of his assailants forced him in front of me. I didn't like the way that they manhandled him, pinning his arms behind his back, like he was an animal. You're sick too. I didn't reply. There was too much information and it wasn't going in. I was staring at the light bulb still in the man's hands. He held it delicately. Boys, it's a simple test. Touch the bulb.
Jonah unsurprisingly laughed. He always laughed at the worst times, though the situation was pretty obscene. You want us to touch a light bulb? Jonah spluttered out another cough. That's correct, the man said. Of the little research we've managed together, N7 shows up in an infected child through electricity. N7? Jonah repeated, echoing my thoughts. What's that? The man ignored him. Touch it, Mr. West. You are testing my patience. I had found myself entranced by what the men were telling me. It sounded like BS, all of it. But I'd still watch Jonah lifting the tip of his bloody finger hesitantly, before pressing it against the glass bulb. I wasn't expecting anything to happen, though something did happen. I saw the spark before Jonah did, because he was coughing again, his whole body shuddering. The bulb seemed to struggle for a moment, before lighting up and illuminating every face in pulsing white light, Jonah included, exposing every freckle dotting his nose and cheeks. It was beautiful. It was so beautiful. That was the last beautiful thing I ever saw. Because Jonah was still coughing, his eyes were sizzling with light, with something alive, something teeming around his iris and he was still coughing. He was still spluttering, and blood was pooling in his hands. That's freaking cool, Jonah said. His lips stretched into a wide smile, but his eyes were too bright. The bulb was still sizzling. Hastily, Jonah removed his finger and then he looked at me. I don't know what he was going to say. I feel like maybe it was wow, something like that. I waited for him to stop coughing, but he didn't. The men holding him abruptly let him go, and I wondered why. The man who was holding the bulb dropped it, and I wondered why. And then I wondered if the others were ahead of me in time, because the bulb was hitting the ground and smashing into millions of pieces. I felt warm arms wrapping themselves around me and pulling me back. And then something hit me. Warm and wet and red. So red. It felt like paint covering me. I felt the weight of it hit me in the face. I felt him and yet in my mind I could still see Jonah's lips twisted into that smile that I loved. I don't know how long I stood there for. I was coughing again but my body was ahead of my brain. In my mind I was still standing in front of Jonah and he was illuminated in that light that had ignited the bulb. The men that had been holding me were yelling, and I was being shoved back. One of the men pulled out a large clear bag and started shoveling the remains of my best friend inside. He didn't look like Jonah anymore. He was a puddle of red on the sidewalk. Strong arms pulled me back before I could start screaming. Sir... One of the men was yelling into a walkie-talkie. Sir, I've got McCann West. Affirmative. A voice crackled on the other end. Are they intact? McCann is. West succumbed a few minutes ago. But we're positive the remodeling is in progress. The men's words were like a spider tongue. I was frozen, staring at the smear of red that had been my best friend. Maybe it was a trick of the light. Or the fever eating me up inside. 
but I could have sworn the pieces of my friend covering the tarmac had began to wriggle and squirm, like insects crawling over each other. I was screaming. I don't think I'd stopped screaming since Jonah had popped. More people arrived and muffled voices behind visors were telling me to stay calm, telling me to stop screaming. But I couldn't stay calm. I couldn't stop screaming. My best friend had exploded. And something was putting him back together.